and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe, which is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. We'll get to that in a minute. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, almost anything can happen. And I've been saying that now for five or six years. And as I've also said before, you'll notice that that anything can happen thing is happening like 24-7. You know, breaking news can happen any moment. It's uh, uh, planetary shaking. Um, In fact, that's going to be the subject of our program this morning, which is the planet. And those who are attempting to leave it to save it. And I'll explain in detail what I mean by that as the morning ensues. Before we get to our guest, uh, who's an old friend and uh, colleague of mine, and we're going to have a really intriguing time talking about this this revolution we're now obviously at the beginning of. Uh, let me hit a couple of news items. If, if you're new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures, which means you can follow along on your device with images and links and video and all that stuff. And normally uh, I recommend people kind of save that till after the show when you're looking at the archive and when you have time to pause things and come up to speed because the way this program moves in real time, it's uh, you don't want to be caught looking at a link when the conversation is moving at uh, high speed. So I would recommend, except for brief news items that you uh, kind of hold off on looking at the substance of the detail until you're, you're listening to the archive. If you're a member of Club 19.5, of course, you have uh, extraordinary luxury to do that any time of day or night. Um, when you want to. Well, what you want to do if you're new to this is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather provocatively the second age of space. And uh, this is a graphic that was produced by uh, uh, the New York Post, which I think kind of summarizes where we are tonight. Because we have something called well, in, in some headline writers' minds, it was the Battle of the Billionaires. Actually, it's much, much bigger. So um, we'll get into that in a minute. Anyway, click on that banner for Saturday night, July 24th. That will take you to the guest page. Right under there, you will see flash links to items. Mine and David's. Click on mine. That will take you down to my first item, which is we're expecting here in the great American Southwest, extending across the central part of the United States later in the week, and then to the East Coast by the middle of the week. Um, Another significant and very, very uh, sultry heat wave. These domes of high pressure, these stationary high pressure zones which uh, Dane Wigington and I discussed, uh, uh, I think, last week. Um, They are are with us, and he is of the opinion that they are being artificially maintained. I'm of the opinion, based on similar data, that they're part of the evolution of the world's climate and that uh, human activities are not maintaining them. But, of course, that's an argument which will go on. The, 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 The bottom line, however is that they are not good for beagles or begonias down on Earth. And until we have a significant uh, ability to literally perform geoengineering on a planetary scale, 
which has upsides but no downsides or foreseeable downsides that can be controlled, we are, as the planet warms, as our content of carbon in the atmosphere increases, as the methane, which is the really insidious part of this, uh, he, he was very accurate about that, the release of methane from Siberia, the uh, sublimation of clathrates uh, under the oceans at shallow depth as the uh, ocean waters warm and mix and warm those up above the freezing point, that increase in methane is much more deleterious and it is occurring much faster than the standard climate models and the computers have predicted. And that's why we are not looking on the horizon at climate change and global warming. It is here and it's going to be here coming this week. So everyone get prepared, take a look at item number one and be prepared accordingly. Now, item number two, um, we're going to be talking tonight about the battle for space, the beginning of what I have termed for many, many years, the second age of space, which in many ways is, is a memorialization of the way things would have evolved if it hadn't been for the Cold War, for the Soviet Union, for the first space race. Uh, to achieve a political objective, a la Kennedy and then uh, Khrushchev. And we've kind of gotten lulled into thinking, I think a lot of people, certainly people who did not live through it, that this is the normal state of affairs, that governments, you know, occupy space, explore space, try to achieve the high ground of space. Uh, that's what the whole Space Force is about. And the private sector kind of plays a minor role. Well, if you look at some history, technological development of air travel in the early parts of the last century, the 20th century, you can see that that's not the way things normally develop at all. In fact, in major transportation revolutions, it was not government that led the way. It was government that lagged. It was private enterprise. It was the free market. It was, you know, the robber barons who achieved the great, you know, extraordinary revolutions that united a continent and made the uh, middle class even possible. So we're going to talk about some of those comparisons tonight as we delve into the history of, for instance, the uh, development of commercial aviation, which is a very interesting template for what I think we are now seeing on the space horizon. Um, apropos of that, you might want to check out item number two in my items and radio with pictures. Uh, this is from Time Magazine, uh, published just a few days ago. Um, actually, it was uh, on the 52nd anniversary of Apollo 11, 52 years to the day when Apollo 11 landed as a major government activity on the moon. But decades before Apollo 11 and the NASA effort and the space race and two gargantuan governments vying for the hearts and minds of the planet through demonstration of technological supremacy, there was a book written by an old, old friend of mine who was of course, is no longer with us. His name was Robert Heinlein. 
And he wrote a book, a very interesting book called The Man Who Sold the Moon. Up until the political earthquakes of the Cold War and the space race vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and NASA and Kennedy and Khrushchev, that was the template for how we would someday go to the moon. It may, in fact, become the template for real, the template. Again, we're, we're going to talk about this this morning. But anyway, you might want to check out the item number two, <clears throat> which says rather intriguingly, forget the Bezos and Branson space flights. The real deal happens this fall. So let me read you a couple of paragraphs and you will give you some perspective. And this, of course, is also going to be part of our conversation throughout the morning. This has been a big month for billionaires in space. On July 11th, Richard Branson flew aboard his Virgin Galactic VSS Unity to a height of 80 kilometers, that's 50 plus miles, at a suborbital altitude returning safely to the Earth and earned his astronaut wings in the process. Uh, There's a caveat there, which we'll get to in a minute. Tuesday morning last, Jeff Bezos followed on the 52nd anniversary of Apollo 11, flying his Blue Origin New Shepard ship even higher, 100 kilometers. That's uh, 62 miles up. And similarly joined the astronaut club again. There is a hiccup there, which we'll get to momentarily. The media did what media will always do in situations like this, present company, present company included, that means Time Magazine, which was to find a catchy hook, billionaire space race, and devote no end of coverage to the Branson Bezos doings, and with good reason. The technology is nifty, the achievements are real, and both Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic aim to open flights to the public to, or at least the vanishingly small portion of the public that can afford a fare, sorry about that, for little more than a 10-minute flight to and from space. And it goes on like that. But let me let me get down to the third paragraph. But the storm of press has thus far largely overlooked a much bigger space deal coming in September. And I, uh, another billionaire, Jared Isaacman, the CEO of Shift4 Payments, an online payments company, which goes aloft with three other civilian astronauts aboard a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft in a mission dubbed Inspiration 4. Never mind 10 suborbital minutes, this will be a three-day trip to orbital space, LEO, low Earth orbit, at an altitude higher than that of the International Space Station. And never mind the idea of flying the mission simply to open up the market to more tourists. Inspiration 4 is intended to raise funds and awareness for St. Jude's Children's Hospital and research center in Memphis, Tennessee. Isaacson may not have the celebrity sizzle of a Branson or a Bezos, but both the ambition of his mission and its philanthropic purpose set it apart from Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin's brief space hops. And you can read the rest of it there yourself. It's item number two. So what we really have is a contretemp between two suborbital technologies, Branson and Bezos, versus, you know, the familiar player in this field, Elon Musk. And his long-range game, 
which is in orbit, has been in orbit for many, many months now, and is intending to go far beyond low Earth orbit, ultimately to and beyond the planet Mars. Item number three. However, in this billionaire space race, to coin a Time Magazine's term, there is some caveats. We're going to talk about the details tonight, and that will be item number three. I'm going to get back to number three when we bring David on, because I think it's important that we have a kind of a colloquy on what this means for the long-range, what, touristification of space, even low Earth orbit. Anyway. Item number four. Now, this one is where things get intriguing, because if you watched on live television, both the Branson trip, which I did, and the Bezos trip, which I did, uh, you notice that after they landed, according to the FAA rules under which NASA and the military also fly, if you exceed the height of 50 miles, 50 miles, five zero miles, you become under the FAA rules, an astronaut. And so both sets of pioneers, Branson and Bezos, and both sets of passengers who went with them, uh, both Branson's crew and Bezos' crew, which included both the youngest and the oldest uh, flyers into space, uh, Wally Funk and uh, Oliver Daimon, they all got awarded astronaut wings. Well, there's a new story coming out this week, which basically says, uh, you might want to hold on that. And let me read you a couple of items from that. All right. This is according to, uh, uh, let me see. This is the Washington Examiner, which is usually very reliable in, in these kinds of things. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his fellow Blue Origin. Oop, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, I hate it when... Things do no no don't want to do that. Get rid- why why can't I get rid of that? No thanks. There we are. My computer is acting up tonight. <clears throat> Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his fellow Blue Origin space travelers might not qualify to receive Federal Aviation Administration awarded astronaut wings for their Tuesday flight. The agency's Office of Commercial Space Transportation changed its eligibility rules for its commercial space astronaut wings program on Tuesday, the 20th, the same day the four passengers launched in the New Shepard to require that recipients perform some activity in space during their flight related to public or human flight safety during the flight. Along with meeting basic requirements under FAA regulation to be qualified as a flight crew, a candidate must fly beyond 50 miles above the surface of the Earth into space, which Blue Origin did by reaching 62 miles. However, crew members must have, quote, demonstrated activities during the flight that were central to public safety or contributed to human spaceflight safety, according to the rule. And then the rules are listed there. And, of course, what they don't say is whether the Branson flight um, uh, actually beat out the rule because you can't have a rule, which, of course, is retroactive. That's kind of like changing the law after you've broken it. So it may be that Branson got his wings just in time and Bezos did not. 
Well, that's going to be a cat among the pigeons if I ever heard one. And we will, of course, be discussing that with um, with uh, David in a, in a minute. Item number five. While all this is going on, Elon Musk, who, of course, is a real pioneer in space, including deep space missions. Remember when he tested his Falcon Heavy a couple years ago and he launched his beautiful little red roadster into a long elliptical orbit? which takes it beyond the orbit of Mars and well inside the orbit of the Earth. Well, NASA has now given SpaceX $178 million to launch its mission to Jupiter and the uh, uh, moon Europa in many, many years, I think by the 2030s, and it will be on a Falcon Heavy. So while the other two are competing for who's going to get astronaut wings, Musk is not only sending human crews to the International Space Station and providing the vehicle in which the Inspiration4 crew will go into orbit this fall, but he's also now staked a claim in NASA's real Vezendetra, which is exploring where no one has gone before. In this case, the little moon of Jupiter known as Europa, which decades ago, I forecast would have living systems in its ocean under its ice cover. And now Musk is making possible by sending the spacecraft into space to Jupiter on a Falcon Heavy, which is going to ultimately answer my age old question. On that note, my guest this morning to talk about the second age of space, which we entered over the last uh, a few days, is Dr. David Livingston, the founder and host of The Space Show. In the 10 and a half years and close to 1,700 interviews he's done, it's the nation's only talk radio program exclusively focusing on space commerce, space tourism, and facilitating our becoming a space-faring economy and society. Dr. Livingston is also the executive director of the Giant Leap Foundation, the 501c3 that controls the space show and promotes space education. David is also an adjunct professor of space studies in the Odegaard School of Aerospace Sciences at the University of North Dakota. He has a BA in political science, an MBA specializing in international business management, and a doctorate in business administration. His dissertation was titled Outer Space Commerce, Its History and Prospects. So without further ado, David, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, Richard, and thank you very much for uh, having me back. A couple of a quick, uh, to be honest, uh, corrections. The show is now in its 20th year, Richard. Oh, my God. Believe. 4, 000, we're closing in on 4,000 interviews, and I retired several years ago from teaching at North Dakota. So... That's in my past. Uh, it's an old bio. We got to update these things. Yeah. Okay. Well, and it's always better to have more rather than less. <laughs> Clearly, and uh, it's always better to outperform what is written down. Exactly. Okay, we got about ten minutes at the bottom of the hour. Let me start off with the big, 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 big picture. What is your assessment of what has taken place this week, a la Branson and Bezos? Uh, well, I 
since my doctoral dissertation was about space tourism, I'm, I'm actually thrilled that it's finally happened after, I guess, 20 to 24 years, depending on which company we're talking about. And a uh, long time coming. And uh, I hope it really does manifest with these two companies as a real business. And they start doing routine flights and, and have customers and publish their pricing and and uh, the industry gets off because it has a real potential to not only be a, an economic barn burner, which the country could certainly use, but um, it's innovation and, and experimentation. I mean, uh, lots and lots of things are happening. You know, Virgin has a sister company that does sounding rocket experimental flights that the private sector can book that, you know, you don't have to go months and months and waiting and waiting and pay over price to, to use a NASA sounding rocket system. So there's lots that can happen. The potential ball is overflowing and um, I'm anxious to see it happening. I'm, I'm surprised at the amount of anti-space publications, magazine articles that I've been seeing since uh, late last year. But really this year, I'm, I'm surprised at people that I, I thought were learned, especially journalists, that um, are just spitting out true garbage about space tourism, private sector going to space. And I'm even more surprised that it seems like there are people managing policy and actions in the government that um, want to put obstacles up to like the like the FAA to get commercial astronaut wings, you got to do something good. I wonder who's really behind that. Um, kind of amplify that because uh, I'll tell you my visceral reaction, given that I watched live because I played hooky, you know, um, Alan Shepard go up on, on Mercury, uh, the Mercury spacecraft in that suborbital hop. I really kind of recoiled inside at the idea of freely giving out all these astronaut wings for just being kind of like a passenger, almost what they used to call spam in a can. Uh, and I'm intrigued that the FAA, the very morning of Bezos' flight, took control and basically revised the rule. And so now you have to really do something. You have to be more than just a passenger to qualify for something which a very select group of people uh, on this planet have, have deservedly been given. And I just don't think that being a tourist that goes 50, 60 miles up qualifies you to be an astronaut. Well, um, if, if they're looking for something that, that says you have to do something for astronaut safety, the very fact that these guys rode a, a risky rocket were, were neophytes, the rocket was neophytes, only had a few test flights, seems to me that, that they push the envelope on doing something for safety because they made it and took the risk and showed that uh, that it was safe and that they can come back. So I I think both on Virgin as well as Blue that they met requirement that this has, but um, they do have a classification as a commercial astronaut wing versus, I guess, a, a NASA or an Air Force astronaut wing. And uh, maybe that commercial astronaut wing uh, implies – uh, a little lower activity standard or something than what you would uh, get with NASA, which would obviously be a lot more training and uh, probably even more risk because the rockets are far more powerful and, and work differently. Uh, but I think they met public safety by 
taken the barnstorming risk to go and and prove that that it was safe and they did prove that it was safe at least for these early days and um, hopefully it continues to be safe well i don't know i it, it, in all fairness i think there should be a two-tier system so that if you do risk your life and limb and make one of these you know hops you get something but you don't you're not in the same class as Shepard or or Glenn or Armstrong or whatever, it it just seems to me there's something wrong viscerally about awarding astronaut wings to people that really don't deserve it. Now, Wally Funk, I think, is an exception because she flew everything the Mercury guys did and then some. And according to the reports I've seen, she actually did better on some of the tests than Glenn himself. And yet NASA just froze her out politically. I think it was even above NASA. I, I saw a, a story the other day that Lyndon Johnson himself penned in the margin of some memo, no, you know, over my dead body or something that women would ever fly in, 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 in the Mercury program. So there was overt, absolute, you know, uh, destruction of their careers at a time when if a woman had flown as a co-equal Imagine where we would be now in terms of the sociology of space, in terms of, you know, looking at female requirements, which, of course, are, are part of the whole uh, tourist thing long term, um, to say nothing of careers, job opportunities, you know, the perspective of women and men as equal in the human. In other words, so many things could have changed if Johnson had not been, you know, an SOB about this. True. Well. First of all, it is a commercial astronaut wing, which I think is a separate class from NASA. And I think if you saw somebody with a commercial astronaut wings on, you'd realize they went to space. But let's say they're standing next to uh, any one of the shuttle pilots or, or whoever went up on the Well, on the, the thing that was confusing had... to me, and I actually watched, obviously, the coverage in, in great detail, each of the companies, Virgin and Blue Origin, designed separate wings. Not, there's a, no one standard, yep. in, which I found kind of strange, because as I've known it, you know, the astronaut wings are basically designed by the U.S. government and awarded as part of an official process, and they don't leave it up to the company or to, let's say, NASA to design them or something. So. I go ahead. Well, I, my memory is is not great on this, but I remember years ago, this was a, a big issue as to whether they were going to get astronaut wings. And my memory is, and I guess somebody could do the research on this fairly quickly, that um, they were not going to get government astronaut wings, but they would be entitled to the term astronaut to be called astronauts if they at the time because virgin said that in the early days they were going to pass the van carmen line which they didn't do so at the time space was for space tourism defined as above the 62 mile limit so they could use the astronaut term but they would not be getting u.s government astronaut wings so i somehow i i'm this is coming back to me and i remember this discussion early on and there was controversy even at that time about would they be able to call themselves astronauts. So I think the company probably never thought they were going to get 
government astronaut wings, which is why they would design their own. And I understand from what the FAA is doing, they're labeling them commercial astronauts to distinguish them regular U.S. government, NASA, or Air Force or Navy astronauts. So in a sense, there is a two-tier system. And um, you know, The only problem, David, if you're confused and I'm confused, the average American, when they hear astronaut, they're going to think, oh, this guy's or this gal is the same as Armstrong or Lovell or Shepard or whatever. I mean, there, there's a need for an education here and a clear distinction. Say what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is David Livingston. I should say Dr. David Livingston. And we are going to be talking about the commercialization of space, criticization how we can get into space, how maybe I can get into space. That'd be intriguing. Anyway, I thought this was an appropriate piece of music to take us out in this segment. Enjoy the magnificent men in their flying machines. Continue to work on yourself. The tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. Then your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created 
by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading towards. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, July 24th, 2021. My guest this morning is David Livingston, and we're talking about space tourism, the commercialization of space, the, the segue, or maybe the symbiosis between government activities and commercial space activities, and for God's sake, maybe the lowering of the price, the cost, so all of us can follow the fifth dimension. Take a listen. So, David, what has been the pre-prohibition against this happening much earlier than both you and I uh, have seen happen? I mean, I remember back during the Reagan 
administration when he established the idea of you know commercial space uh, somehow fostered by the U.S. government, if not by NASA, which was vigorously opposed for many many years, as you you know, and I guess our audience should should know some details about that. But what what do you think took this long for this to come about? Can I give you the facts on the astronaut thing? Because I looked it up. Yeah, by all means. So uh, prior to the X Prize in 2004, the government awarded astronaut wings, and they were government astronaut wings, even if you worked for a commercial company but were paid and trained uh, on a NASA mission. So, for example, if Lockheed had somebody doing something in space for a NASA mission, even though they're a commercial company, they got government assets. So under, under, but, an, un, under a NASA contract. Right. So that changed in 2004 when the XPRIZE was won by uh, Scaled Composites. And those then NASA, then the FAA created commercial astronaut designation to separate those from government astronauts. And when uh, Virgin did their test, plot, test flights, those pilots that made it to space got commercial astronaut wings as well, on the, even though they weren't uh, carrying passengers back then. And so that's the start of the separate designation. There was no criteria for what you have to do other than uh, you have to go up above 50 miles in the U.S. if it's the international astronaut uh, designation. It's the Van Karman line of 62 kilometers. But for the U.S., it's 50 miles. So that the history of a separate designation for commercial astronauts began with the X Prize being won in 2004. Now, if they really do go forward and say you have to do something useful – and it's not, as I suggest, surviving a risky blight, because maybe that does add to safety, then that would be a new addition to the commercial astronaut wing designation. And those that have already gotten their wings would probably still get to keep their wings, the, the early Virgin pilots, the X-Prize pilots, etc. And if they aren't, if they can't post ex, ex post facto, a law change, I guess for blue, it would depend on the actual time that the FAA issued this change to do something <laughs> useful. And if blue flight had been made earlier before they signed their new policy, because remember the blue flight went pretty early in the morning. So uh, I, I guess lawyers can have fun with that one. <laughs> but uh, So there is a separate designation, whether people such as yourself think it's significant enough to separate what a uh, what a commercial space tourist does they're actually not called space tourists they're called space flight participants because of the liability they face the space tourist is a press nom uh, uh notation but doesn't have any meaning in FAA legal uh, parlance or in any of the commercial space acts so um you know if one thinks there should be better demarcation so that these are not considered equal I can certainly understand that, but um, I also think that, look, they're kind of like the barnstorming pilots, you know, where they took a lot of risk and, uh, and proved that, you know, they could make, you know, private space flight could be safe, that the protocols, the 
the checks on the rockets, the safety procedure. And this is really critical for Blue because it's, it's all AI. There's no pilot aboard Blue. You know, there are pilots aboard Virgin. So, you know, if something goes wrong uh, and the control center back on Earth can't deal with it or the pre-programmed programming can't deal with it, they train the crew in emergencies, but I don't know exactly what they can do because there's no controls in that cabin for them to take over. How in so the world – David, this is a really important point. How in the world did the FAA qualify for civilians to ride in a, in a spacecraft that literally they had zero control over? Zero. Well, they demonstrated that the 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 programming and the backups and the redundancy for for automatic intelligence and redundancy and all of that uh, worked. And they flew the the required test flights and they went through the test protocols that were required. And Blue Origin passed. You know, they were out there in Texas. You know testing it for many years. I know Blue is pretty tight to the vest. In well, as far as I know, they had 15 flights before the one that Bezos went up. That was enough. <clears throat> I, I used to do shows with with Gary Hudson, who had Rotary Rocket before it went under, a uh, very well-known rocketeer, and other people. When all of this was being planned, and one of my favorite questions was, is, is private space tourism, I'll use the word space tourism, uh, really going to be safe? And how many test flights would you want to see a vehicle go through before you'd climb on board? And I remember one show, and I'm pretty sure it was Gary, but don't I won't swear to it, who said that there'd have to be at least 50 and maybe more test flights uh, because a lot of crazy stuff happens with rockets. Okay, so you, you said 15. I don't know how many test flights Virgin has had, but Virgin has had accidents. And how many test flights... Have they had since their well they, they had their one major accident which was incredibly stupid pilot error the, the, the right, right but but I'm just I'm just saying they, they have had accidents most accidents turn out to be probably pilot error but um, nobody's had close to 50 test flights and uh, but they were approved and uh, why you know did they met the requirements and so I I guess uh, the FAA signer space flight participants is because these are experimental flights and they're not equal to getting on an airplane and flying as an airline passenger from point A to point B. And a rocket does not qualify for the same kind of flight rules and safety requirements as an aviation product does, an airplane product does. It's a different part of the FAA regulations, and it's much riskier. It's much more experimental, and um, and I guess um, whatever Blue did and whatever uh, Virgin did, they got passed and approved. And I remember just a couple of months ago, the FAA cleared both Blue Origin and Virgin to carry space flight participant commercial passengers on board for the first time before they were carrying their their own people and their own researchers, uh, although this was the first time for Blue. But anyway, they got approved, but it's real interesting that Blue is all automatic. There is no pilot on board. Now, I don't know all of how those crew people are trained in case there's an emergency and they lose link with the ground or the or the program gets 
you know, screwed up somehow. So they uh, don't even have an onboard computer with sensors that takes control in the case they lose the link with the well, ground. Well, they might. And, and again, I have not ever seen what the backup safety is in the capsule if they lose uh, their command or their programming for the mission. And maybe other people have seen it. I have not. And I, I would love to know what it is, but I don't know what it is. But m maybe they have so much redundancy at the local level in the cabin, uh, and maybe someone on the cabin has a designated role to start pushing the buttons to activate it. Uh, but I don't know. Well, they probably start with redundancy, you know, more than one radio link, more than one transmitter, more than one oh, yeah, receiver. Because remember, you, you, with, with Blue Origin and with Branson as well, <clears throat> you're basically going straight up and down. So it's line of sight over New Mexico or line of sight 60 miles down over Texas. So, um, you know, you, you're not like going downrange. So as long as you have line of sight, it should be pretty reliable, uh, particularly if you well, have redundant. And it, and, and it worked, and it was a safe flight. So whatever systems they have on board to do this with AI and, uh, and redundancy and, and whatever training that crew or those spaceflight participants have in case there's an emergency, then um, it worked. Now, I'm, I'm sure they have training on what to do if the parachutes don't fully work and they have a hard landing. I'm, I'm sure they're trained how to get out of the spaceship and, and how to make a run for it. Uh, so I'm sure that's part of their training. But weren't uh, they, they all wearing weren't they all wearing parachutes? It looked like it to me, but I never got clarification on that. And other people I know in the industry who saw what I saw, and we were all asking each other because we were on calls together, you know, and we had ten people on the phone line and stuff. We said that looks like they're wearing a, a parachute on their back, and everybody thought that's what they were wearing. But I've not, again, seen confirmation of that. So maybe that's their escape plan, how to open the hatch and bail out. I, I but, don't but, know, but, but you see it to be at a certain altitude to do that. I was going to say above a certain altitude. <clears throat> now, as I understand it, the uh, prep for Branson's flights, which is basically a space plane, are very right. different and much longer than the prep for Bezos, which is the ballistic up and down Alan Shepard flight. I did not notice anybody prepping for parachute jumps because the way you prepare for a parachute jump is you jump out of an airplane in a parachute, right? Or you do static lines off a tower or something like that. Yeah, I don't, know, I, so. don't, I didn't. And what I'm intrigued with, there was kind of wall to wall coverage, but these critical questions I've never seen addressed either on anything so, written about Branson or about Bezos, and I'm wondering now kind of why. Consist of completely. Um, I, I do know that, you know, Virgin is a, a whole different experience than Bezos. Though, you know, those parachutes could be, it could be part of a system where you're thrown out of the capsule, and even if you go unconscious, that parachute's going to open and do everything automatic, like a pilot ejects out of a military plane, and let, he's knocked unconscious or he can't function, when he gets down to a, a certain altitude, that parachute's going to open, and it's very, very reliable. 
I mean, the guy may be hurt. He may even not be around anymore, but he's coming down on a parachute uh, that may open automatically. For all I know, those parachute packs are set to open automatically, and you're going to free fall, and, and maybe somehow they get ejected out of the capsule if there's a problem. How would they get uh, and, ejected if they're not in the ejection seats? And I'd have seen no. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe the bottom opens up like a. But you an see, we, but, but David, we. I don't know. We, but we should know. That should have been well, part of the coverage. I mean, in my day doing this, I we covered I, everything, everything. Yeah. And can you imagine Cronkite or Jules Byrne or or uh, <laughs> any Bergman. of those guys? Jules Bergman, yeah, I'm not Jules Byrne, <laughs> although I bet he he would have done a great job. He would have done a great do. job, yes. Uh, can you imagine them not talking about emergency procedures? Uh, well, isn't that the know, first I'm, thing you think of? I mean, Bezos was kind of being cherry about his family, was really happy to get him back on the ground. And the hugs he got and all that, because apparently his wife was not happy that he was going to go on the first, quote, commercial flight after 15 test flights before. Uh, I, I, I just I love the idea of this. But the secrecy, particularly around well, Bezos, I find very, very troubling. Well, I would love to know what their emergency procedures are. But here's another question that I would like to know. I'd like to know what happened to these people's life insurance. Did, did it cover them on an accident? Did the life insurance company say, hey, if you do this, uh, you're on your own. You know, this is going to be an exclusion. Did they have to get special insurance like you get when you join the military, although you don't get much, even if you get blown up with an IED. But, I, I, you know, like I know adventure travelers that go diving with uh, shark tanks and their life insurance and their corporate board policies. You mean you mean those cages, allow, those open cages? Yeah, and those, and those steel cages won't allow them to do it or their their life insurance that uh, is with them through the company, for example, won't cover them in those kinds of adventure things. So I, I just well, wonder. Hang on, hang on, hang on. As, 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 as the space business guy here tonight, you've raised a really interesting point. If Bezos and Branson are trying to kickstart a whole new industry, the biggest impediment is always money. And what happens if you have accidents? I mean, going back to even pre-commercial days, you know, NASA we always thought, and I had friends who recommended that each of the astronauts, you know, videotape a testimonial to why if something terrible should happen to them, the program should go forward. Now, NASA never adopted any of these ideas, which I thought was kind of dumb and short-sighted, but there was a lot of discussion after Challenger, you know, was the program going to come to a halt, et cetera, et cetera. You can obviate a lot of that by making up front very deliberately that let's say Blue Origin or Virgin is indemnifying the insurance. So if something awful happens, they and their families are taken care of in a very lavish way. And that would allay a lot of fears, plus the transparency in what actually happens if something goes wrong, goes wrong, goes wrong. Quite. Quite the opposite happened. There were, while all of these spaceships were being developed over the last 20 plus years, uh, the industry worked on liability laws. And so uh, most states 
and where you would launch from and other parties have liability laws in place that can uh, shield the spaceship from litigation uh, by families and people that are hurt or killed. Interestingly, they don't shield for third-party property damage, and that gets insured for. So your rocket blows up on the pad and blows up a hotel two miles away. Third property property damage, can you can get coverage to protect that, and you have a maximum insurance law that you're supposed to but carry. David, David, but, David, isn't this a huge impediment to the industry? Because who in their right mind, given that there is a finite chance something will go wrong and you'll be well, killed, wouldn't virgins, you, wouldn't Richard you think virgins, – go ahead. Uh, well, all right. Go well, ahead. I was going to say Virgin sold over 600 tickets when a lot of these liability – and litigation discussions were going on. And I remember lots and lots of attorneys coming on my space show program talking about the lit litigation, the liability law, how the, the space industry pushed for the liability laws because they realized that there's no industry if you, if you have uh, kind of unlimited liability. And so um, the people, I'd interview people who bought Virgin tickets and they, it, it didn't stop them. But what did concern a lot of them was that their life insurance would be voided. Now, I remember when I got out of the Navy in the very early 70s, I was a, a hobby scuba diver. I wasn't a Navy diver, but the Navy taught me to dive. And I had learned to fly in college, and I was a single-engine seaplane and, and land pilot. And my life insurance did not want to cover me for scuba diving. I had to, to find companies that would let me buy an addendum that limited me to something like 30 feet or 60 feet or something like that. And the same thing with uh, flying a private plane with me being piloting it, even though I was licensed. And I went to AOPA, the American Association Pilot Association, American organization, and a couple of others that issued pilots of general aviation aircraft different kinds of insurance. Now, I'm dating myself going back to the <laughs> 70s, so I don't know the market for any of this now because for health reasons, I haven't been able to die for a number of years, and the and same thing for eye problems. I didn't fly for the last 20 or 25 years. I don't know if, if flying and diving have become standard risk for life insurance or not. I'm sure your listeners know more about that than I do. But I do know that these are big issues for adventure travelers, and I would imagine space flight. And I would like to know if the press had been on their balls, on their toes, I should say, <laughs> uh, they okay. would have explained what you do in an emergency in both vehicles. They would have said, Hey, are you wearing a parachute? That looks like a, a fighter pilot's parachute pack. Does it open at an automatic altitude? Do you have to be conscious to open it? There's a thousand questions you could ask if they said, yes, that's a parachute. And I, I would say, what about your life insurance? Is it valid if there's a problem on this flight for your family? Nothing. And the companies didn't volunteer the information. But I'm just curious. I... I would have liked to have known. 
Well, does this go to kind of the demographic of the people that both Branson and Bezos are trying to appeal to, which is Maybe. basically I, I, young, single, hedge fund, multimillionaires overnight, that kind of thing? Well, I think a lot of people are, are older. Maybe they're not my age, but they're older and, and they have a lot of money. And uh, so I don't think it's all just, you know, young hedge fund, Wall Street people making a lot of money or or, or tech people coming out of Silicon Valley. I don't know if they're what their profile is for that. I'm sure they would uh, like to protect their families and estates. So uh, and I I've seen the contracts years ago from Virgin. I've never seen a Blue Origin contract. And, and that's another issue for me is, you know, what actually exists for Blue to sell to customers in that press interview. I know I'm changing the topic. He didn't list a price for his flights, and he says they're going to do two more flights this year, maybe. And what? How are they going to sell their flights? Are they? Do they have any flights sold for 2022? I mean, and and then they got one vehicle. You know, one of them may have two vehicles. How do you build a business with one vehicle? Think about starting a rental car company or an airplane company. Uh, you, you're going to do it with one rental car, with one plane? <laughs> and, and they don't have – they don't have. how do you run a business this way? So a lot of the criticism on Bezos was as a rich guy, you know, doing it as a hobby. And the, the damn Blue Origin – except for the new Glenn and the other rocketry, which we can get to later, does have an appearance sort of as a hobby because he couldn't answer the question of how it's going to be run as a business and and do flights for 2022. And if they go to Texas to launch, there's no services for people out there. Branson puts on a huge show. I mean, a guy is an, a phenomenal showman. And a branding expert. And oh, if I if I was offered the choice, I would go with Branson over Bezos. And you know why? Why is that? Because there's a huge run up. It's not like you know sex oh, yeah. where the organ is, the orgasm happens in thirty seconds. You've got days. You've got an hour going to altitude under the big uh, you know uh, uh, air, yeah. aircraft. Yeah. It, uh-huh. There's a whole run up. A whole surrounding frame to those three or four minutes of 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 zero gravity and bezos is just you know wham bam thank you ma'am yeah you saw what when they landed out there in the in the desert in in texas and they bring a little three three stair thing up so that you can walk out the cabin i mean it it it, there's it you know it's more like covered wagon stage um but but if you're going to run it as a business it would seem to me you're set up to handle people. Okay, well, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour, and we will you know, obviously so it, come back to all of this. Uh, My guest this morning is Dr. David Livingston. We're talking about the side of this that no one talked about. You know, you're a middle-aged guy. You clawed your way to the top. You've made a few million dollars. You've always wanted to, um, you know, go into space, even if only for a few minutes but you've got a family, you've got relatives, they need support, you've got a company, you've got responsibilities. Who insures you for your three or four minutes of joyriding on the off chance, higher than for commercial airliners, that something bad can happen? 
And how come no one has covered this in any of the coverage of this launching of the second age of space? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, uh, July 24th. We're still, by the way, in the um, 52nd anniversary weekend of Apollo 11, 52 years ago. At this point, Neil and Buzz and uh, uh, Michael were on their way home. They were headed for the Pacific for a splashdown. And I was at JPL covering the uh, return of the astronauts from JPL for CBS News. And there's an extraordinarily weird story about all that, which is in the front part of uh, Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. So you might want to check that out. David, this thing about um, uh, insurance, particularly if you are looking for a demographic that's got money to burn. And has always wanted to do this, given family pressures and business pressures and all that, it seems to me there's a huge gaping hole here in the side of the entire, pun intended, enterprise. Well, first of all, you know, I don't know if they have life insurance, if their life insurance, you know, included. uh, But we should not have to wonder. This should be right up front. If you're trying to attract customers, you want to make it as safe as possible within the bounds of excitement and all that. And you definitely want to cover your rear end in case something goes wrong. And that has not even been addressed. I've seen nobody in the press. No, no. And and it, and it doesn't, I just, during the break, I looked up one of these, I pulled it out of the garbage can. One of these mailers I get to uh, get travel insurance and flight insurance to take me home if I get sick overseas or something and it says we our insurance is valid on any or aircraft company wait, wait. you you kind of dropped out there uh, on any what licensed 
aircraft or aircraft company. Okay, so, so these are licensed. So your life insurance would then gotta have a licensed airline, to, to, and then the insurance is valid. Uh, you, you can't. Yeah, but wait, you know, wait. Charge. Both these companies are licensed by the FAA, the same as the airlines, right? Yeah, but they're not. They're not. They're. I think their licensing is experimental, and it's different because, again, remember, you're not a tourist, and there is a tourist definition that is different from space flight participant. The space flight participant is destined legally as part of the experiment. So, so this opens um, up a real can of worms. So when the F in the Commercial Space Act of uh, I guess it was 2004, and they identified space flight participants, and b because legally a tourist has a different has a different kind of definition in law like a, a tourist or a passenger on an airplane. But the participant in the experiment of this particular space flight. And once you're classified legally, and, and for this you need a an adventure travel or a, a, a space type of liability attorney. But once you are the space flight participant, you are part of this experiment and your liability and your insurance and all sorts of things are different. For example, a space flight, the rocket blows up and does a lot of third-party damage. As a space flight participant, you could be part of the group that gets sued. For you're that liable damage. if you're a passenger? You're not a passenger. You're a space yeah, flight. Yeah, but technically you're a passenger. These guys have zero control over their own fate and but destiny. Legally, their contracts and everything are for spaceflight participants. Oh, this and opens up a real can of I'll tell you, let, let me do this. Uh, Ron, do a special show about this. Hang on, hang on, hang on. If, yeah, yeah, but I, I want to try to solve it tonight. Ron Gerbron is going to join us in the third hour. Ron, if you're listening, could you look this stuff up and see who's covered, who's not covered, what the liabilities are, why the, the Bezos is being so secretive about this, and Branson is not much better? Because we'd like to have that. And to the general audience, when I open the phone lines in the third hour, if you can have someone who actually has some background legal in this area call in, that would be incredibly interesting. And David, yes, you're right. We should probably uh, do an entire show on this if we find the right people. I presume in your Rolodex you have some people that we might uh, call upon, right? Well, years ago, I mean, it, it ceased to be a – a big topic. I don't, haven't probably talked about it for eight years on the space show because it, it just within the, the space flight community, it, it was just a given and a known. It was no longer a big deal. Yeah, but you're appealing to people, the average Jane and Joe, who happen to have a few million dollars and want to spend on this that thing. They're not in the space community. They're your average consumer, even if they have a lot of money. So why would this not be thought of? Why would there have not been coverage given that I would think the the most important impediment to this is, is it safe? Uh, well, it obviously it, it was safe for these flights. Yeah, but I that's mean, a one-time occurrence. You can't do so, statistics uh, on 16 flights. Come on, you know that. Well, uh, the question would be if, if you – I ask this question to a lot of people. 
would you fly on either Blue or Virgin? Which one would you prefer to fly on? And uh, most people said if they had the money, they'd much rather go on a on a SpaceX orbital flight. They think it'd be a lot better, but they need a lot more money, and you're going to talk about that flight later. Yeah, of course. Between Virgin and Blue, most people have told me they would prefer to fly Blue because they think that Blue is safer and has put more into safety and redundancy than Virgin because Virgin has a sort of a track record of having had a lot of problems and a lot of trouble. Um, but every single one of them said, come back to me after they've flown 20 or 30 times, and then I'll tell you if I'm willing to take the flight. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, let's go into some of the details of running this as a business. You say that neither Branson nor Bezos, because we're going to leave Musk out of the conversation until later in the program, neither Branson or Bezos have a real business model for how to do this. Talk more about well, that. No, Virgin does, and they pre-sold some 600 tickets. So the question will be with Virgin. And hang on, is, let, me, let, let me interrupt. During the press conference on Tuesday, Bezos did let slip that he's got $100 million in the kitty from pe- previous people who have signed up for the ballistic hop. And given that they're going to have to have competitive pricing in the, in the order of like a quarter million bucks, I would say that's about the same number of customers at this point for both, wouldn't you? Uh, well, I don't know because I don't know what he told uh, blue people see uh, blue is is pretty close you know with the publicity this they was a live interview talking. with with stephanie rule yeah, yeah. who is the business uh, executive came from chase and went to work for msnbc and is obviously a space cadet and was out there literally with tears in her eyes as she saw this unfolding and she asked the question and bezos answered her we have a hundred million dollars in pre-registered uh passengers for future flights. That's a lot of tickets. That's a lot of tickets. But he, he, you know, he needs to say, this is our price and we're going to fly in 2022 at this rate and, and kind of show what they're going to do. Why do you and, think he's not given the stunning pioneering he achieved with Amazon? I mean, completely changed retail. Why do you I, think he's I, not as forthcoming about this? I, I think he's just used to, you know, being less forthcoming and not as transparent and secretive. Blue was very hard to get information over the years on. You know, they were, uh, they didn't talk as freely as Branson. Branson often couldn't stop talking, <laughs> and uh, and you know, he's a, a different kind of guy than than Branson. So I don't see a lot of sinister bad stuff in there. I I just think that that he's much more tight-lipped and um maybe he hadn't worked it all out yet and but it didn't look to me like they've also got the facilities there the infrastructure there to handle a lot of people unless they're just going to have four or five people show up there and and then maybe a week or two later do it again and it, it, he's not looking for a high production facility on the other hand virgin is more or less looking for that and Virgin does have a published price and a, and all of that, and they do have a backlog of flights that they need to get going. So with Virgin, you want to see how they handle the flights, what kind of 
operations they have. What are their, do they have delays? Do they have equipment problems? And, and, you know, they've got two vehicles that they've got to deal with. And, um, you know, those two vehicles are the, the spaceship as well as the carrier plane. So, you know, they, they have a lot of overhead that they have to pay attention to to make sure everything is working right on flight day. You say uh, that neither one of these operations is a real business. Talk about business, space business, commercial space, like development costs, sunk costs, recurring costs, because <clears throat> if you can carry six passengers per vehicle and you're willing to kind of uh, – you know, write off the sunk costs and development costs, then that's 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 basically money you make on every flight. It just takes you a long time to make a lot of money. So when Virgin started out, their plan was to have multiple flights per day. Oh, really? Turn around. Yeah, you know, back back in when they were describing what they were going to offer, they were going to have multiple flights per day, quick turnarounds and things like that. Well, I don't know that they're still shooting for that kind of goal right now. So um, one of the things I'd like to see is how they process their backlog of, of flights and, and how they handle them. And, yeah, they can they have huge development costs. They can, they can write them off against revenue, and they can do different things like that unless the tax laws are changed and they're not allowed to do that. And, um, and, and they can make – money but um you know you've got to keep getting new tickets sold you've got to keep the pipeline full and and the and the planes flying and they've got one plane i think they've got a second one that they're uh that is either about to be ready or is ready i think they have and maybe some of your listeners can correct me i think they only have the one carrier plane so anything delays can really hurt them. It, it's just hard to have a business when you when your infrastructure that you need to carry on the business is limited. Again, it, it's how do you have a yellow taxi company with one or two <laughs> yellow taxis? I'm, I mean, it, you know, it'd be very limited and probably very hard to grow. Well, if you're the only one of two going. It's not like they have any other place to go, and given that it's not a, a well, commercial flight or a business well, flight, they got to they got to keep it in service, and so uh, it just it seems to me that uh, they they need to beef up how they're going to do this to service the public. Now, one of the things that I've questioned from day one is what do they do for repeat sales, because most businesses spend a lot of money to get a customer for the first time and then you don't have to spend much if you can keep that customer they'll keep coming back for more but and so every ticket you sell is like a new customer sale which are the most expensive types of sales you can make and i've never seen a good discussion on getting repeat is that something that they're going to be able to do is it going to be substantial is it uh, a gift when it happens and they've got to have new people um, all the time? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I would think a good business would include repeat sales. Well, given, given, repeat sales. given your economic niche, how many people can afford even one flight, let alone two or three? I mean, well, 
I know Wally Funk turned to Bezos and said, you know, very d- d- dramatically, I want to go again. And she turned right to him and he said, yes, yes, you're, he said, you should be going to the moon, which I thought was kind well, of she intriguing. Didn't, she didn't pay for it either. Exactly, so. exactly. She was basically saying, I want for the use of my name to go up again. But that's a kind of a one-off. How do you, I'm just surprised, David, that no one looking at this industry has thought of these questions and written extensive pieces on it and forced the companies to answer the questions unless everybody looked at this as such a nutty pie in the sky idea that nobody took it seriously until, you know, 13 days ago. No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I just think there are a lot of questions, a lot of different ways to focus on things, uh, even with really high quality space journalists. Um, I don't think they probably think about repeat sales. But see, this is not a I'm space journalism thing. This, 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 David, this is not a space journalism thing. It's a business. It's a, it's a corporation. I, I, it, Richard, I'm just telling you, I've not heard it brought up by anyone. I've brought it up a lot. I've even asked the people at the companies when I've had a chance to interview them, what are your plans for repeat sale? And, uh, you know, I, it's like a, we're working on it or uh, – they haven't thought about it that much yet because they're they're really working on other aspects of getting the space planes ready or doing this or that or or something like that. I don't know the breadth of the space of the suborbital space tourism industry, and so that is a caveat that I have. And by the breadth, I mean you know maybe it's a mile wide and two inches deep because you're not going to get repeat sales. So then every sale is a new sale, and new sales are costly, whether you're selling pantyhose or whether you're selling space flight, and you really want repeat customers, just like Toyota wants you to keep buying Toyotas. You know, they don't want to lose you. So I don't know their plan to have repeat sales. I'm repeating myself. But I think this is a key question to ask, not specifically about Branson or Blue Origin, but in general about the suborbital business. So is someone going to fly on Virgin for a quarter million dollars or a half a million dollars or whatever the price is and then say, I'm ready now for another suborbital flight. I want the Blue Origin experience. And so are they going to go do that? Or if space uh, Virgin opens up flying in Europe, or let's say they start flying in the Southern Hemisphere, are they going to say, I want to spend another two hundred fifty or $300,000 and go fly and, and see the, uh, the, the Terminator line in space from Sydney, Australia, uh, you know, or something like that? How many folks are there that are willing to do that, or do they just want one suborbital flight They've had the experience. They go to space. They get some kind of astronaut wings that makes them happy, commercial astronaut, whatever. And uh, they can tell all their their friends and show all the cool pictures of them doing somersaults at 62 miles and, you know, the stuff that we saw in Blue Origin. And, uh, and they're happy campers, and they're not going to go fly it again. So how much of their business model is based on having to get always a new first-time passenger or participant, to be legally correct, versus how many are going to take the flight again? 
Well, if if and, you were running either company or both companies, <clears throat> how would you go about getting your product, which is the space flight for a few minutes, before prospective customers? There must be listings of millionaires, listings of millionaires in terms of Facebook, you know, interest, yeah, that kind of thing. Travel, yeah, travel companies, adventure travel companies that deal with high-end travel market these flights. I get requests to do shows with people wanting to represent Blue Origin and, and Virgin and, uh, you know, we'll plan your trip to go uh, climb the mountain if you want. Uh, so that there are travel agencies that specialize in this kind of travel and that can rep these companies and, and help sell them. They get a lot of publicity. They speak at different events and conferences. They get the word out. There are books written, magazines written. I mean, the word gets out. If people are looking for unique adventure, adventure travel kind of weird things, they can find these companies and 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 contact them. You could probably contact Virgin directly and, and get flight information. And the same uh, for Blue Origin. It's probably on their websites now. So they market through agencies and they have direct sales marketing and they they have a lot of public imaging out there um, things and all sorts of different things i mean people that want these experiences know how to find these experiences so i don't see so the business model is we don't have to find them they will find us well i can't tell you for sure because nobody's ever shared their business model with me but i think that's a big part of it uh, right now it's a very hot topic, and uh, and it probably will be for a long time to come. So well, let me let me I, let me let me throw some data in the mix here because I watched microscopically the coverage of both flights. Uh, Virgin Galactic Branson did not sell tickets. The Bezos crew, particularly the young lady who was their kind of anchor for their coverage, right. she sells she right. sold tickets. Every 10 minutes, she was giving out the website, and if you want to fly with us, you know, no, not a hint of how much it would cost, but I think it's one of those things, if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it, that kind of thing. Yeah, you sign up, and they send you the information and talk to you about it. But for comparison, one flight on either one, and I presume they're going to be competitive, is the price of a house, right? Well, not in San Francisco where I live. So. Well, most of the country is not San Francisco. I'm talking the – Yeah, I'm, you know, just, I'm just kidding. But uh, Well, yeah, but there are people that have that kind of money, and they want those kinds of experiences. The, the question again is how, how, many, how many of those people that have that kind of money want to go to space? How many of those people are willing to take the risk to go to space once they start to find out about it? And, um, you know, you, you go down the list as to what narrows the market when, when you start asking real questions. So, you know, you can go to a shopping center and say, would you like to go to space? And everybody will say, yeah, yeah, that'd be really cool. I want to go to space. I used to do that, by the way, for my dissertation. I stood in a shopping center <laughs> and asked how many people wanted to go to space. And then when you start asking qualifiers uh, like – you know, space is really risky, and it's not even close to being comparable to riding on a, an American Airlines or a United Airlines jet, and uh, rockets are not nearly as safe. The number of people that now will say, I want to go to space, drops off a little bit. And then when you throw in a quarter of a million dollars, 
drops off again then. Then if you throw in and say, do you have any back problems? Can you, uh, do you have any heart problem? Can you sustain 5Gs for about 30 seconds on reentry to Earth? And they say, what's the G? And you, you tell them that they're going to weigh five times what they weigh, but you'll be in a supported seat and your head may be restrained so that it's in the maximum position to sustain high gravity for a few seconds. Uh, the number of people that say they'll go drops off. Then if you're talking to a guy and his wife walks up and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm answering a survey about wanting to go to space. And she says, over my dead body, then the... <laughs> Then it, I watched the numbers drop off again. So people will say, yeah, yeah, I want to go to space, and they'll call up Blue, and they'll get the information, they'll get the pamphlets, and then, you know, it, it starts to narrow from there uh, as you go through the qualifications and the details and the payment plan and the liability issues. So I just – I don't know how big the market really is. I don't know if there's a resale – a, a a repeat sales market, and uh, I know the the whole world is their market, but most of the whole world can't afford to do it. But you know they can find wealthy people in almost every country. One of the things if I was they, intrigued by in terms of the coverage of both, and again at this point I would fly with Branson's airline as opposed to Bezos just because there was more there there. The thing that was not there is what do you do when you fly into southern New Mexico to America's spaceport? The spaceport itself, which was paid for by uh, New Mexico taxpayers to the tune of about a quarter billion dollars. It's a gorgeous right. place in the middle of nowhere, about 30, 40 miles from uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, which is very aptly named for this activity. But there are no hotels. There's no local infrastructure and I'm just kind of wondering why, given that Branson is such a visionary, didn't he create hotels for his passengers who stay in so that once you land, it's like you have an end-to-end -end extraordinary experience up to and including the room in which you're staying, which is not like Bezos, a Motel 6 down the road. Well, when Spaceport America was approved – with this bond issue, by the way, with very, very poor counties of New Mexico. And um, they were to have an entire commercial support environment around the spaceport of shopping, of, of education, of hotels. It was going to be an incredible center, none of which happened, uh, largely because of the unbelievable delays with spaceport with, with Virgin that happened, the contract problems with space with Virgin. Remember, they were supposed to start paying years and years ago, whether they were ready to fly or not, and they didn't do any of that. And there were that's what caused a lot of the financial problems for Spaceport America. But all the auxiliary businesses that were going to be attracted there because of Virgin and all of this big hubbub buzz of commercial activity, none of it developed. So you're right, Spaceport America, I was there, I don't know, about eight years ago. Spaceport America is out there in the desert. I don't even know if the southern road through the Las Cruces area has finally been done. I mean, I, 
I went there through Cruz or Consequences, but I also came up and went through Las Cruces, and we, we went in buses. We were part of a space conference, and, I mean, we were on a desert road in buses. I mean, it was it was dust flying everywhere, bumpy <laughs> as hell. I mean, Well, that kind of adds to the experience. Done. But, but I, I, the- I would think if you, if you want – what Branson should have done, given how much money he's got, he could have built a damn hotel – to make sure that his passengers, his participants, have the experience end-to-end, I would think. Well, um, maybe. You know, he could have built a Virgin Hotel. I I can't speak for him and and his finances. But here again, if you are going to put a lot of passengers through there as a viable, active, regularly commercial business – Hold Wouldn't on. you put the damn hotel there? Well, I would think we at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. David Livingston, I presume. <laughs> We're talking about space business, how to be a tourist in outer space. Well, no, technically, legally, a space flight participant because you're part of an experiment. This is the new version of where I live in the land of enchantment, the real new wild, wild west. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, July 24th, 2021, still in the Apollo era, 52 years ago this weekend. Um, The astronauts were still not home. They were heading home, but they weren't home yet. 
a half a century. And on that mark, Jeff Bezos and company took a flight 62 miles into the edge of space, qualifying for some kind of astronaut wings. Indeed, the wild, wild west. So, David, we are back. Um, I just, you know, given that these guys are both showmen, Branson certainly more than Bezos, but they've got advisors and people around them and all that. I'm just really astonished that no one has thought, okay, if you're going to charge a quarter million dollars to do this for a few minutes, you need some surroundings. You need a beginning to end experience, which is one of a kind made a deal with some big hotel change, you know, Marriott, Bigelow, whatever, uh, and, you know, done it upright. Why do you think I, they're not? Uh, I What I think about all of this is that in time it will come, but th- this really is the very, very start. I mean, again, it's taken both of these companies decades to pull this off and uh, and to get it started. And it's just starting. So maybe it, it's not fair to say everything should be ready on flight one. And what we really need to see is how it develops and, and how it how it evolves. And will this be a catalyst to get the commercial development that was planned for Spaceport America underway? Or will Virgin or Branson or somebody step in if they see a really good flight load happening? putting in a a first-class hotel there because the flight rate is pretty high with Virgin. But I I think it's too soon for anyone to make those kinds of investments right now. And unfortunately, none of the plans for Spaceport America that were going to be into a really great development program came about, but Virgin had lots of delays. They had accidents. They lost people in the process. And uh, Blue never had plans like that. I've never heard uh, or read anything about Blue's plans to to uh, turn the Texas launch site into some kind of thriving, commercial, glorious spaceport. He certainly has the money to do it, but maybe people want the rustic, kind of covered wagon, kind of <laughs> barnstorming early day experience. It, it may be part of the of the whole mystique rather than Everything being like Club Med for people who know what Club Med is, where you know it's posh. Everything is developed there. Sandals, sandals is to. sandals is the new Club Med. So okay, sandals, and you're pampered to in every bitch. Maybe people. Well, but you could to. have a guided experience that was roughing it. You know, Wild Wild West, that kind of thing, being picked up at the airport in a stagecoach, being driven to your, you know, lodge kind of like a you know a space lodge with rustic you know maybe that's forthcoming richard but uh, the focus is on can they can they keep this up can they have a great flight rate 
that grows and can they continue to main safety, maintain safety and can they continue to attract passengers and fly at a rate to make this a real thriving commercial operation. And I, my hunch is they can. I am hopeful that they can. But I think the verdict is out on a lot of the, these questions. Okay, I, I saw mean, something. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, you know, these were commercial flights, okay, but they weren't people that bought tickets off the street. They were hand-chosen crews to go on the flight. And I still don't understand the scheduling conflict for the twenty-eight million dollar ticket. Do you buyer, know? Do you I, know? Do you know my suspicion about that? No, I have no idea, but that's a really weird I think, one. I think the $28 million bid was Bezos himself, and it was all about getting publicity. And then he was able to turn around and give it to the kid whose father had paid an unknown amount of money. I mean, the fact that there's not open disclosure on how much people are paying. We know that Wally didn't pay anything. We know that his brother didn't pay anything. At least we think we know. Um, but, 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 you know, the kid's father paid, and he was there watching the launch. You know, this big Dutch businessman who runs some right. kind of a hedge fund company. But I have a feeling that 28 mil, because nobody who has offered 28 mil to go do this has a scheduling conflict. Come on. I listen, I, I think that's one for the book. So listen, <laughs> your idea is probably as good as any. I, I've heard other, other stories, but. Who, who knows? But the, the point of what I was going to want to say is that these are not the people that these are not the people that have bought the tickets for Jurgen. You know, Virgin no, of course the, not. Six hundred no. some people. There's nobody that I know of that has yet that I've seen interviewed or talked to, but I don't follow it that closely. That uh, has been an arm's length customer to buy a ticket from Blue. But I get – I'm telling you, I get email from people wanting to be on the show that have a travel company that say they have an agreement to rep Blue and Virgin and sell tickets. And I say, do you have an MOU to do that? No. We don't – a memory, uh, memorandum of understanding. Mm. No. Do you, have you sold any tickets yet? No, but the industry's just getting underway. <laughs> flights are just happening. I, and nobody's contacted me since the flights happened. So it's, this was all before the flights happened. It's the Klondike no, gold rush all over again. Okay. Like a big pregnant world. And we just keep waiting for birth. And I hope develops. And I hope like Matt, it is very, very safe. And I hope they have a high flight rate uh, and satisfied customers. And here, I'll give you another one that worries me about the, about the, the, the experience. So um, space sickness is not something to – Oh, to I'm glad you brought this up. Yes, this really okay, – so Wally, Wally, Wally Funk went into this at some length during one of her interviews. So go ahead. Here's my take on – I mean there is room in these capsules. You can float around and you know, and we're in the, the Spaceship 2 vehicle. So that's fine. And uh, but you know you're not on oxygen. You you've got pressurized cabin with redundancy. You're not in really in spacesuits. You're in short sleeve kind of environment. So somebody starts getting sick. So what happens in a movie theater when somebody starts coughing, or or if somebody near you starts throwing up and and the odor comes to you, man, it it triggers everything. Or if 
their instructions for what they're supposed to do so that if they do get upset and start throwing up, it's not floating around in microgravity when they get into zero gravity. I mean, how many people sitting next to the guy or the gal who's throwing up are going to have their $250,000 trip ruined? <laughs> and then they're going to come back down and they're going to give a press interview and say, bah, bah, the person next to me, I feel sorry for them. They were sick as hell, but they made me sick. And, oh, the smell was horrible. And, you know, so how many trips are going to have some kind of you know why mar- why he why he doesn't both of them don't have like an attendant a trained attendant who could take over in those emergencies because that's a huge well, Achilles heel. I personally think it's a big Achilles heel because people get space fly on airplanes like you do and I've sat next to people puking in the little vomit bags they give you and it's sickening. I feel sorry for the people, but oh my God, get me out of here, you know, and um, think about, you know, having spent $250,000 for this experience. Well, wait, 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 isn't this the point where I bring up the drugs? Okay, so. In other words, do they all all get a a Dramamine shot before they go up? Don't know, but here's, here's the downside of that. They will probably work. There's no assurance that they'll work, but they probably will. But they also dull your senses. So if you really want to have the the you know full experience, the virgin and be experience, alive and all of that, you don't want to take a drug. That's why they say don't drive if you're taking taking Dramamine. And we we had. On my diving boats, when I was a diver, you know, and going on underwater photography trips, we had Dramamine and all the stuff for seasickness. And if you ended up taking the pills, you didn't go in the water until uh, X amount of time had passed so that you would be alert enough to perform whatever you had to do in the water if there was some kind of a problem. And usually if you were sick on the boat, as soon as you got into cooler water, you started to right yourself. So you could make the dive w- without dumping a lot of pills on you. But, you know, people would take them and they'd sit on the surface and, and wait and, for a certain amount of time and, until they felt that they had enough command of everything and they weren't that drowsy. But they do uh, tend to mar your attentiveness. And, you know, people spending $250,000 want to experience the trip. The drugs, I don't think they're mandatory. I don't see how they could be mandatory, but I'm sure they're there for people that start getting sick or that think they're going to get sick. And they're probably cautioned and said, look, if you think you're going to get sick, take them before you get sick, because if you're already sick, they're not going to help you much. Um, But just imagine being the guy next to someone who's having a really bad sick experience and how that's going to impact your 250,000 dollar experience and then you come back and you say man be careful who you sit next to because if they get sick it's going to ruin your trip Uh, what effect does that have on potential customers i think it's an unknown maybe it's trivial but i've often thought about it well it'd be nice if they thought about it because you know one bad interview could kill what, $50 million worth of ticket sales, right? 
yeah, it could could stop a lot of people from flying if they see, and if it goes viral on YouTube. I mean, I, look, I've thought about it. Um, it's not something that I understand is, is talked about that freely. I don't know what the plan is for people on space signets. I'm a, I absolutely would guarantee it's part of the crew's training before they go on the flight. Uh, and I'm, I would bet they have Dramamine or something with them, uh, and they're told that if you start feeling nauseous, take it, or if you are easily prone to seasickness or something like that, uh, take it. And yes, it does dull your senses, but it'll be better than you're being sick. They're probably given instructions on head placement and eyes and, and stuff like that. So, um, I, I'm sure that's part of their training, but again, yeah, but the whole I've point of doing this, training. the whole point of doing this is you do barrel rolls and somersaults and zero gravity, and you look out the window and you throw things. I mean, they were actually throwing balls back and forth in Bezos' flight uh, between Mark and and Oliver, which kind of looked interesting and cool. And well, people, go ahead. People fly on the zero-G flights. You know, you can do a 737 zero-G flight with a couple of companies, and they get sick all the time, and they come back and say it was a wonderful experience. They love it. And, uh, and I, yeah, I got sick, and some of the parabolas that they fly. Yeah, but that's very different sick. than this because a 30-second parabola where you know that the gravity is going to grab you in 30 seconds, and then you, they do it again and again and again. You know, up, down, up, down to, to extend. They also have attendance on the zero-G flights. I know, I know. Um, during the coverage, they had astronauts talking about some of this, like, you know, the, the idea of getting space sick. And all the astronauts said that when it comes to zero gravity, remember, you're in a seat and you're pinned in your seat at three Gs just before engine cutoff. So there's right. no there's no inner ear movement because the name of the game is not to move. When that right. rocket cuts off, <clears throat> after a few seconds, they release their seatbelts and they float around. They say that the adrenaline for those first few hours completely supersedes everything, and the nausea and the problems with zero gravity inner ear disturbances don't really set in for like several hours. So since you're only dealing with a few minutes, maybe medically, and there should be some doctors out there that have been consulted on this, maybe medically, the, the, the odds are that except for a very rare passenger participant, sorry, uh, you know, space sickness is not going to be a problem because adrenaline is going to overwhelm everything. Look where you are. Well, if they're saying that and they have that experience, I would defer to their wisdom and to their experience. And uh, see, and I, I would that think would that the adrenaline, that, the adrenaline rush of being there and going through it would supersede the Dramamine, so that it wouldn't dull you. It would just put that problem aside, so you could focus on the experience. That would be the way I would, as a non-medical person, kind of approach they this. May, they they all have space doctors on their staff for the for the for the people going up and that may be again part of their training and and part of their instruction so again this is not something that that's, that's freely talked about the journalists don't ask a lot of questions about it um, so uh but why not 
Why is well, journalism I, so stupid about this? Well, and it, you know, if you do talk to the to the doctors, they say it's not a problem. Not that many people will experience. You know, it's kind of treated lightheartedly and and dismissed. And of course, it would be because they don't want to say this is going to be a problem, and we're really concerned about it. Uh, but that's I where the press should ask the questions. Look, if if you can be in the U.S. Air Force and you're flying the Vomit Comet, the 707 they used to fly for like the mold program when they were simulating right. zero gravity. You've got guys there. You've got medical personnel for, 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 you know, trained Air Force officers. Here you've got four civilians, up to six, and they're all on their own in an automated spaceship that's on a parabolic trajectory to, you know, Newton, but there's nobody to turn to except your fellow novitiates in what to do in an emergency like this, it sounds crazy. Well, they probably had training for it, but they're probably in touch with the ground too. So, you know, if somebody's having a problem, you know, I'm sure they're... Yeah, but you need someone who's right there, not someone who's a radio link away. Like, describe the patient's symptoms, you know, and you've traveled 200 miles in that time, you know, vertically or whatever. Well, maybe in their chairs, they're monitored somehow. I, I don't – that's another question I would ask. Is there any – are there any vital sign monitorings through the chairs or the harnesses for the – As far as I know, that? no. What they do have, which was added to the cabin for this first, quote, commercial flight, they do have direct radio link between each of the, quote, astronauts and the ground. So they can ask mission control directly – I'm feeling weird and get in their ear, you know, prescriptions. Oh, yeah, I was, and, that, and that's probably part of their training. I'm sure they've thought it out as much as, as they can. And, you know, it'd be great if somebody took their manual and put it up on the Internet after one of these flights. Why isn't so it? People could see Why hasn't someone already done that? Doing, huh? You know, we live in a world where there are no more secrets. So why hasn't somebody already done that? Well, because I think the only people that have flown have been company people. But maybe when when arm's length real paying passengers do it, and they let's say they do get a, a manual on, on their training and what to do and all, maybe somebody will, unless they're told that it's copyrighted and they can't do that and, and they'd be somehow prosecuted or something. I don't know. But um, I think when you start having – the tourists go the the spaceflight participants go through the program and start doing it you might see some of this information put out there and show people what their training okay well of let making. me let me let me turn our conversation because time is fugiting so let me turn it slightly um you said in a note to me earlier in the week that both of these are dead ends that they're not really scalable We've got about 10 minutes before the top of the hour. We'll pick this up on the other side. So start with why you don't see a growth model for this particular suborbital experience. Okay, so for Virgin, they use a hybrid rocket engine, and it can't scale up. And so it can do what it can do. You mean you really can't make a much bigger space plane? You can't. And uh, and their Virgin 1 that launches satellites – is a, is a little bit different, but that's designed to be a sounding rocket kind of launcher. Uh, so if you want to go orbital, 
and you want to do different things. It's 17 to 20 times more energy. You can't do it on a hybrid rocket plane. And uh, so Virgin has nowhere to go because they don't have any rockets. And when they talk about wanting to go orbital or point to point, it's probably fantasy uh, unless they start developing real propulsion. And as far as I know, I've not read anything or anything that, that they're doing that. Yeah, so they, have, they have a hybrid rocket that can go up and down uh, with their six or seven people, and that's what they've got. They cannot do orbital spaceflight with it. Uh, they can't even get to the von Karman line with it. Okay, that's why they're doing this uh, 50 miles instead of 62-mile thing. Okay, so now we go to Blue. So Blue's a little bit different because they're actually building real rockets, although they have delays with the New Glenn because it uses uh, – well, they have delays for a lot of reasons, but it uses a BE-4 engine, which they have contracted to give to ULA – not to give, to sell to ULA for their Vulcan, which is supposed to be ULA. ULA. is the United Launch Alliance, which is a right. commercial corporation, which is a kind and, of a consortium of all late. the major – aerospace corporations let me tell people because we use these acronyms people have no idea what we're talking about so we have to explain it so they're they're waiting on blue origins be for engines in and in fact that's one of your yeah but that's not but 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 but, but that's that's not a big deal and i put that article up there because i knew we'd talk about this i mean if if, if you hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on if you go back to the beginning of the space program everything was up for grabs Schedules were not met. Rockets blew up. People died. It was the wild, wild west. This, to me, is much more, shall we say, saleable, that we know whatever the problems are with the Bezos BE-4 engine, which is a liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen engine to be part of the big rocket, New uh, Glenn, and then the even bigger rocket, New Armstrong. We know they will solve the development problems because it's engineers and money, and Bezos has got $205 billion to spend if he wants to. So that's not a long-term impediment. Of the two companies, Branson appears to be limited to what he's doing now for the foreseeable future unless he unveils something totally different, whereas Bezos has growth potential and is looking to lower its orbit and ultimately to the moon, right? Right, but – when I talk about limitations with Blue Origin, the new Shepard suborbital vehicle, it's dead end because all it can do is a suborbital flight. So in terms well, of – Well, I heard Bezos say the other day that new Shepard, which is over-designed for this suborbital flight, is really a testbed for the second stage of New Glenn. So well, they, they, they have I'm thought saying- this through. So, so blue has a pathway to orbital flight and to to doing other things. I'm just saying their suborbital vehicle is that suborbital vehicle is not going to go do orbital flight. It has to be merged into their bigger rockets that they're making. It's not going to go do point to point. It's a suborbital vehicle. But blue has the pathway to doing other things in orbital space because they're making big rockets. So so Virgin's a dead end because they have nothing else. Blue has a path to orbital space and big rockets and launches, 
but their suborbital is what it is. It's suborbital. Okay, but what's wrong with that? Because I think Branson is is happy with his niche, and Bezos. Say again. Go ahead. I I said Branson Branson is happy. Go ahead. He has said in the past that they want to do uh, orbital flight and they want to do uh, point to point. So for Virgin to be able to do that, they they've got to make some radical changes in in their company and their. Or does he simply buy a vehicle from Musk or from Bezos, like American Airlines buys from Boeing or Airbus? In other words. You don't have to be all one thing in one company. You can, if you're really commercial, you do the frills around the experience, which Branson is really good at, but he wants to, I think, get his water wings, mixing our metaphors madly, with suborbital and dealing with space participants till they figure out, is there a real market? Well, he, if SpaceX wanted to sell them or... I don't think – well, Blue might want to do it too, and you know, who knows? But yes, he could do it through acquisition you know, or by buying vehicles you like – You buy a vehicle, like, so, like you buy an airliner. You're, you're a company. Uh, you're flying into your western, your frontier. You buy or you rent – actually, you lease sometimes a major aircraft, and then you put your people on it. There's been no commentary of that, and – and he talks about doing it with, um, you know, his own stuff. So if he's planning to develop that within Virgin, um, and maybe he is, uh, we're not seeing the the beginnings of that yet. Whether he can buy a, a SpaceX vehicle and operate it or uh, another vehicle, there aren't very many other vehicles, uh, it remains to be seen. But for Blue Origin, um, their suborbital vehicle is going to be a suborbital vehicle, but he's putting in resources to develop these other really big rockets to rival what SpaceX is doing. So if he gets them to go operational and starts getting business, then I think everybody will be far better off because you'll have more rocket potential, and that should be competitive and should help lower the cost. Yeah, we're at the top of the hour, and I want to talk about competition, and I want to take us back to the barnstorming days. Um, this could be really interesting. This could this could get into some very interesting territory. So uh, let me tell everybody where we are. We are approaching the midnight hour here in the land of enchantment. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It is the witching hour. It is midnight. From now on, it is the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment. Just a few miles north of America's spaceport, where Richard Branson took his uh, space participants aloft in a really interesting experience. And I can just see, you know, the space-type stagecoach picking you up at the airport and carrying you out to the hotel and the rustic atmosphere and the cookout and the campfires and the stories and then the spaceport this glittering jewel in the desert and the warm-up and the flight for an hour on the carrier aircraft up to in other words Branson's got the potential I'm not sure David that um, uh, Bezos is looking at it in the same way I think he's looking at his up and down experience as a way to pave the road to space for all the huge big ticket items he's thinking about. And he actually talked about them during the uh, Stephanie rule interview where he's, he's basically following the craft Eric model where someday industry, heavy industry has moved off the earth into space where pollution is not a problem compared to what the sun does every millisecond. What do you think? Um, I know that's what he talks about. Uh, I probably won't live to see anything like that happen. <laughs> but uh, hmm. uh, I know I know other people, you know, support that kind of perspective, and uh, they've talked even about putting uh, some uh, certain kinds of industries and things on the moon to get them away from planet Earth. And maybe that'll happen down in the future, but that's a big part of Bezos' space vision, uh, for sure. I, I don't, I don't think Branson has that kind of a space vision. He's not thinking like that. Nope. nope. What I find interesting, because I knew Kraft Ericke so well, and Kraft Ericke was the German rocket engineer who, with von Braun, you know, developed the V2, and then their paths diverged radically. They both came over here on paperclip, and uh, von Braun went to work for the for the U.S. government for NASA, became head of Huntsville, developed the Saturn V, etc. Kraft Ericke went to work for private enterprise. He went to work for uh, Convair in California, and ultimately was heavily involved in the development of the liquid hydrogen rocket technology, which was so hard to achieve in the 1960s in the Centaur rocket, which NASA used 
to send the uh, unmanned surveyors to the moon. And now it's to the point where Bezos has developed the most efficient liquid hydrogen engine, the BE-3, which is part of the uh, uh, second stage that he's talking about for the new Glenn. So it seems to me that Bezos has his idea on big architecture, big vision, long-term plans. And I would be willing to make you a side bet that it's not going to take very long at all, uh, given that we've got real competition between Musk and Bezos for deep space before there is some industry we will see moved off this planet as costs plunge. I want to bring into the conversation uh, our resident generalist, Ron Gerbron. Ron, you've been uh, listening to our conversation. You've hopefully been doing a little homework. Um, bring us up to speed on the insurance stuff that I find so weird that no one's asking except David, you know, any questions on this? Uh, yeah, I have a really good, hi Richard, hi David, I have a very good grasp, I think, on the um, basic mechanics of the thing, I'm still waiting for my um, online law degree from Bart's Law College, and uh, but um, I have delved through a bunch of these, there's one term that everybody needs to remember, uh, it's the territorial jurisdiction. Okay. Your Skype line is breaking up, so can you say that again, please? Yes. Quasi-territorial jurisdiction. Quasi-territorial jurisdiction. Okay. Yes. It's in the shell on all of these. I looked at a bunch of um, legal treatises on this stuff, and um, yeah, there was a treaty a liability agreement signed in 1972 by all the countries that um, claimed that we need to have such a thing. And it all has to do with jurisdiction. Uh, you know. Oh, I'm, we're having a really bad signal from Ron. I'll tell you what. Um, can, uh, go ahead. Who's, is it, can you hear me? Yeah, that's much better. I'm hoping. Okay, I, oh, I must have been leaning on the on the microphone or something. I'm sorry. It's a headset. Uh, the uh, yeah, the uh, the problems are that, uh, and it's all still very fluid. That's why the legal treatises are all so long. Uh, you have to find out who is responsible for the spacecraft, and so that's where this quasi-territorial jurisdiction comes in, because if you rent it from somebody else then you can be legally cited as the um, quasi-territorial owner of the thing. Uh, this all started when they were wondering what to do if somebody drifted away from, that was on a spacewalk, drifted away from a space capsule, and maybe they banged into a satellite and they caused damage, and whose fault would it be? And really, so in order to extend the uh, legal umbrella that would apply to the spacecraft itself to things like uh, passengers that take a stroll outside, uh, they had to come up with that sort of a concept. And yeah, it's still all very, very messy, but there's lots and lots of it and it'll keep a lot of lawyers employed uh, if anybody tries to pursue anything because the um, you have to decide where it came from, meaning the launch point, uh, and the, see, the U.S. legal system 
has things under the jurisdiction of the states overhead of which the uh, spacecraft that's about to blow up or shed its contents or whatever happens to be at the time. And they don't really have a way around that. It doesn't, you know, there's no, there's no way to supersede the jurisdiction of those things. And so that's why it's all very messy. I mean, you can write it out. It's all very concise and reasonable. You know, if you sent the thing up, you're responsible for what happens to it. But the idea of whether the passengers are also liable as uh, parties to a lawsuit or something that happened to just be passengers, uh, that's another space, problem. Space participants. So space participants. <laughs> exactly. That's another term they made up. That's exactly what they are. They're, they're space participants. And uh, so it's still getting sorted out. And uh, I, I would tell people not to waste their time looking at the Wikipedia entries. They, they're kind of worthless. But there's, there's stuff from Black's Law Dictionary and a number of um, legal schools and so forth. And it seems to be basically solidly international law. So I don't think we're going to have a lot of problems there. Uh, the only one I can see with possible problems would be China because of that quasi-territorial jurisdiction angle. Because this means that if they're doing something – see, they had to cover things like launch platforms that were out in the open seas because they're not under the uh, legal boundaries and jurisdictions of any particular country. So the uh, uh, if you reflect on this, it circles back to the way the Chinese behave of simply sort of claiming areas of jurisdiction. And if they do that, then they could be responsible for all sorts of things that they didn't actually do. So it, mm. uh, there's going to be the yeah this uh, see I'm trying I'm trying to not dive into the weeds on this because it can go on for hours but you get the idea it's very yeah. complex and it's very yeah it's still very fluid and I have and a feeling as, I have a feeling guys that this is really going to involve rapidly when there are real people in the pipeline when you have real space participants and everybody's been kind of holding their breath for when this was going to launch now it's launched now you've got I don't want to use the term ambulance chasers, but would space capsule chasers be appropriate, David? Well, you've got a couple of layers here. So the treaty, it's one of the five United Nations treaties on liability. So the, the treaty makes the launching company legally liable for everything that gets launched from their country. And you can have shared liability, you know, in some complicated cases. But so SpaceX launches. Well, let's use Blue Blue Origin launches. The U.S. government is liable for that launch, except that they pass in their launch license process that liability back to Blue Origin by making them have certain levels of third property, third property third-party property insurance and indemnifications back to the U.S. government. Okay, so that handles that part of it. Every launching state passed anti-liability laws to facilitate space tourism. California even did it. Virginia did it. Florida did it. New Mexico did it to try to keep accidents from bankrupting companies if they happen by launching in their states. The problems come in, you have a person from New York flying on the Blue Origin flight that blows up in Texas, 
there's a liability law that Texas has signed, and the contracts say litigation is going to be under Texas law, and the guy tries to sue in New York that does not have an anti-liability law. And will that lawsuit prevail or get thrown out of court? Your guess is as good as mine. If and when a really bad accident happens, all of this network is going to get tested, especially if really wealthy people are on there where they have estates and families that have money to pursue lawsuits. And how you know as well as I do, who knows what the flip a coin with how this kind of a lawsuit could evolve. So I think a lot of the liability and the litigation and who's responsible and all that, despite what's been done in in writing, it we're going to see how it evolves if and when a really bad accident were to happen, and I hope it doesn't happen, uh, but that will trigger these processes, and and who knows what the courts will do, and they'll probably go to appeals courts, and it would probably be a long time in judication. But, and that's a different issue than whether the participants get to have life insurance flying on these flights. So uh, that is another element, and and uh, and if there's no life, or or if, or if they're flying with Blue Origin or Virgin abrogates their existing life insurance policies. Well, I don't think I don't know. I've not seen their contracts, but I don't <clears throat> think Blue and Virgin are offering life insurance. Maybe they are. I I don't know. I don't. I just simply don't know. But if you have like. Uh, I don't know, metropolitan life insurance for a million, two million dollars, and you are flying on a, one of these space tourism flights and it cracks up, are they going to pay or are they going to say that's not a qualified carrier to be insured on? You know, I, I'm sure life insurance companies are going to end up in litigation too because these policies were taken out many, many years before space tourism ever existed. So I think exactly. there's a lot of lot of legal issues that what, no matter how well they get written in law, you everyone knows it. When they're actually pushed to the wall in litigation, you know who knows how they're going to turn out. And I just oh. hope that we don't find this out anytime in the foreseeable exactly. future. Exactly, you want that day as long as possible. Okay, but back to you, Ron. Yeah. Uh, okay, I just wanted to say there's a and that was a that was a beautifully um, laid out uh, presentation there, David. Thank you. That's thank better, you. Well, better you, than Ron. I could do. In, well, I mean, I spent 45 minutes on it. You spent, uh, you know, years. I've been doing it uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah, so you're pretty, uh, yeah, that's, I, so I have no quibble with that. However, there is a wrinkle. The, uh, yeah, the, the Marvin Gerard in me always looks for the wrinkle. And, There's uh, always a wrinkle. The, the, yeah, there is an outstanding contractual thing which has been upheld in a number of states already because we have had ground accidents that would fall under the umbrella of the uh, sort of these sort of situations uh, where if someone is an invited guest, and these are international, if someone is an invited guest, you know, like you have the heads of state from four countries standing there to watch the launch of something mm-hmm. and it blows up on the launch pad and the shockwave incinerates everybody in the crowd, uh, you are completely indemnified. 
uh, and the government, the U.S. government, has assumed a role. As this is how serious they were about of, about not getting diplomats uh, mad at them. Uh, they they have they have uh, enshrined a rule where they can pick up the uh, damage assessment. It's it's currently got a ceiling of five hundred million for any particular. So well, let me like, see if I understand you, this. We don't have a lot of time, <clears throat> and we're probably putting. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> A lot of people's, uh, um, you know, to sleep with all this legalese. But you're saying that if you have a whole bunch of VIPs at Cape Canaveral and they're watching the yes. launch and the rocket blows up, it's equivalent to a, you know, three kiloton nuclear weapon for some of these large rockets and people are, are injured or die. The U.S. government picks up the liability by law up to 500 million. Currently, right? They have uh, yeah, that's yeah. They have the option. That's the short form. Okay, they, so sure why couldn't be covered, well, David? 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 Why couldn't <clears throat> because yeah. if the U.S. government wants to, you know, accelerate and enhance and you know encourage private space development, commercialization, space tourism, etc., they could do the same thing with with Bezos and uh, Branson, right? And Musk. I, I, think, I, I think it would be a congressional action to do it. And uh, why would they do it? Why would they not do it? Then you'd have to go talk to members of Congress. But have they already done it and we just don't know about it? Because no, I, it, no, no, no. It, 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 Isn't that a huge you know, oversight? It, well, I, I don't know if it's a huge oversight or not, but. Um, well, given the that US space flight ultimately always results in a tragedy, as does air travel, okay, you would think betting the percentages at some point, particularly early on, this is going to kill a fledgling industry unless there's an economic backstop so the participants know and their families know we will be covered. Even if the companies are not suable, we will be covered because the U.S. government officially indemnifies the, the well, whole mechanism. I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any indemnification like that, nor am I aware of any talk that has proposed or talked about the U.S. government stepping in for uh, underwriting liability for these commercial companies for commercial space flight tourism. But if now, Ron has already I, found that they have done this for orbital launches for VIPs, and I presume. Members of the press. Well, and, yeah, but they're probably government launches, so this is not a government launch. So if you talk about Cape Canaveral, yeah, but wait, 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 hang on, hang on. Musk launches from what used to be the original, you know, uh, uh, Pad 39A, which was the Apollo launch site. So what's it's, he it's launching. A, he's launching private missions to space, like this, like this in well, Inspiration yeah, Four. He's, he's carrying a payload. For businesses that have and carry insurance, we're we're not talking about a fledgling, developing, emerging businesses. He's carrying an Intelsat satellite, or he's carrying another Comsat on it, or he's carrying uh, something else on it from a company that carries liability insurance. And so it's a different ball game with what Musk mm -hmm. is playing. It's not the same as a little. 
I mean, while Bezos himself is wealthy and Branson is wealthy, uh, I don't know what the financials are and the asset values are of Virgin or Blue Origin, but it's not the same as launching a, a national reconnaissance satellite for the government or a $250 million or $500 million geosat for a telecom. Okay, well, I, 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 we have obviously put everybody to sleep now with all this legalese, but it seems to me this is the yeah. – uh, what was the term they used to say, the uh, uh, skunk at the garden party? And I think, you know, on Monday or so, I'm going to call Lloyd's uh, of London because they cover everything and see if I can get someone to talk to me on the record as to what the status is. And I may have that information by next weekend. Ron, I want to go back to you. You listened okay. to our two hours. Obviously, you have thoughts yes. about all of this. Tell us some of your thoughts that have developed as we, David and I have been having this conversation? Well, one of them uh, has been percolating since the beginning, but let me just finish up this legal thing. It's in, David, it's in Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty under the, under the premise that a government has the general authority to uh, express an interest and control if necessary over something going on in its territory. And they extend that with that quasi-territorial thing to mean that even if it's even if it's something that they think they should have control over, but it's taking place because the launch is off of the east coast of South America or something, they can still claim a piece of it. And that's where that that's where this is. And there was a congressional bill. Don't ask me the number uh, <laughs> for last year. Cr Cr something or other. Okay. Anyway, but my uh, that's all I know. The uh, yeah, the one thought I had is about this business of the who gets to be an astronaut. I don't mm. know why it bugs me, but I reflect back on – I'll let you quote it, Richard. The uh, One of Robert Heinlein's famous quotes about leaving the Earth's gravity well. Oh, when you're, when you're in Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. Exactly. And I think that should be the standard for astronaut wings if they're going to be serious about it. They want to make up other stuff, give it other names. That's fine. But all of these low orbit things that could see as to my mind, if you if uh, if your motor cuts off and you fall back down, you didn't make it to space. That's a you know, you don't have to go into orbit, but I mean, an orbit is just a fall that misses its target. Right. Uh, the um, uh, yeah, I think I think that this business about the Carmen line, von Carmen line, which, you know, has more to do with atmosphere than anything else. Uh, and the uh, and that other arbitrary limit which sounds like pure legalese the uh, faa nasa 50 miles well you know how that came about and david correct me if i'm wrong but after the apollo astronauts and the gemini's and the mercury's and you know certainly the shuttle there was a group that flew planes like you know armstrong flew the x-15 but there was a whole bunch of pilots of the x-15 that never to to fly with nasa but they did all those huge, hairy, scary things with the aircraft. And so I believe, if my memory serves, there was this carve-out at 50 miles so the X-15 guys could get in just under the wire to be space astronauts. Correct. Well, it it has to do with, with atmosphere and other things, but the Air Force said 50 miles was it, and, and so that's the carve-out for the U.S. government, and um, the international groups use the 62-mile limit, uh, but there is no actual 
official certified bona fide 100 proof line that says you're in space or not in space. No, of course not. So by general agreement, it's internationally 62 miles. In the U.S., it's 50 miles. But there's nothing written on a plaque that says this is where space begins and this is where Earth's <laughs> atmosphere begins. Or yeah, right. begins I guess. And so. Um, well, I think this but, is a, this is a branding thing, is a marketing thing. Both Bezos and and uh, uh, Branson would suffer if part of the absolutely. perks of spending so much money, you couldn't have bragging rights that you were in space, you were an astronaut of some and, kind. And, and, yeah, absolutely. I think I think it it would affect them to some degree. I don't know how much. I mean, they could issue their own astronaut. Yeah, but uh, that doesn't. Co- no, it's, 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 it's got to be bigger. It no, it wouldn't be the same thing. Uh, I don't think making it to orbit makes sense because then all your suborbital NASA astronauts that flew on Mercury or uh, others would would not be qualified. Well, there's only two guys. There was Shepard who went onto the moon, and there was Grissom who died, uh, you know, yeah. a few years ago in the fire. So that's taken care of. There's no NASA precedent, but I'm sure I, I, there are other space programs in Russia. In in you know other countries where they're going to do suborbital pre prep for uh, for uh, ultimate orbital. Well, I, and they they follow the international sixty two mile yeah, line. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know the fact that they carve it out as a commercial astronaut, and uh, I'm sorry if people confuse it and don't understand it, and and maybe Virgin and Blue could could state more clearly that these are commercial astronaut wings and the way you get a government astronaut wing is you fly a government mission or you're trained by the government, uh, you know, for, for people that want that to be clarified. But uh, they made it into space. They made it into the zone that is different from being exo-atmospheric. When, m- so, m- many years ago when Robin and I were on the Hill you know, kind of politicking and, and uh, you know, trying to navigate the shoals of Republicans and Democrats on my idea that there should be another cabinet-level position, which covers all this called the Department of the Exterior, and NASA should be part of that. As we get into the commercial realm, it's going to become much more relevant. Um, I got a, a little pair, a, a, a little pin from the House of Representatives that I could wear you know, on my on my jacket, and it was the same pin that the congressman members actually wear, and I wore it a few times. And people on airplanes, stewardesses mostly, would say, "Oh, how did you get that?" And I would have to tell them the story. It didn't make me a congressman, of course, but I had a memento, a souvenir of a unique lobbying experience. Both Robin and I, you know, got got a pair. I would think that you need some kind of significant award, but it's not the same as being John Glenn or Neil Armstrong. Well, it says commercial astronaut. That's not the same. But as the being press John has Glenn. not made a. They just said astronaut. The press again has well, fallen down abysmally in making it clear. Well, no, this is you're not John Glenn. You're Susie Public, private commercial astronaut. Let, let me count the ways the press has fallen down, Richard. <laughs> you know, let's just add this to the list. I, I'm not responsible for what the press does or doesn't do, but you're right. It falls down, 
and um, and uh, uh, you know whose job is it to educate the press? I don't. I don't know. I, do they listen to your show or anyone from the press listening to this? I, I don't know the answer. Well, we, it, we it, have a, a veteran space reporter at Cape Canaveral who is a faithful listener on the show. And uh, uh, I may actually bring him on uh, sometime soon and we'll kind of kick this around because it's, it seems to me it's almost like form follows function. Until there was an activity, until there was an industry, this was kind of academic. Now, if Bezos, who said he's going to have two more flights this year, I think September and October, so that's going to be 12 people if he fills up each flight and doesn't go himself, there's going to be 12 ordinary civilians paying a quarter of a million bucks a pop and who are going to be very vocal about their experience. They're going to be from God knows where, how many other countries and all that. Anyway, I just seem to think that maybe these questions are a little premature because until there's an industry, there's no real reason why these should be asked. I'll tell you what, hold it there. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron and David Livingston. We're talking about commercial space flight. What happens when ordinary people, just because you have a lot of money, does not make you different than an ordinary person, gets to go. And I want to talk a bit more about this idea that this might be a dead end. And I want to bring up something very novel, an unexpected, unintended consequence of sudden space tourism on a reasonable scale. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Um, let me do something here that I was bereft of doing in the uh, last half hour, which is I wanted to give out our phone number. Because if anybody wants to join the conversation 
Or if you're a lawyer and you're a space lawyer and you actually know the answer to some of these really fundamental liability questions, which may be the rock on which the industry founders, I don't think it's quite that drastic, but you know, I'm trying to be a little bit out there tonight on this. You want to call 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. That's our phone. There are operators standing by. Actually, I'm sitting, so uh, uh, that's not quite true. 917-889-8802. If you have questions or you have a piece of information for us on this burgeoning field, let me move the conversation, gentlemen, to something which I think is really interesting and I have not seen discussed anywhere in any of the back-to-back, wall-to-wall 24 7 coverage which took place around all this over the last 13 days there is a classic phenomenon which is well known in the space industry called the overview effect i forget who wrote the book david you may remember frank white frank white and so tell us about the overview effect because then after you lay out for people the background i have a very important question about the overview effect and space tourism to uh, spring on you. So give people the background on this author and what he said. Well, Frank Wright wrote the book, and now there, I think there have been four copy, four versions of it. And uh, he interviewed people that uh, went up to space, uh, astronauts, as well as civilians that flew up to space with NASA before um, Challenger blew up. Uh, and that included, by the way, Senator Nelson. He blew up, and uh, a Saudi Arabian uh, prince, uh, even Ben Saud, I think. And uh, he wanted to know what their experiences were. So uh, the overview effect was that they could see the Earth without borders, with, without fences. They could see Earth's you know, atmosphere and climate. They could see fires burning. They could see thunderstorms, lightning. You know, And there were no lines telling you this is Texas, this is New Mexico, or this is France, or this is Germany, or Israel is here, and Egypt is here, and all of that was gone. Even the prince from Saudi Arabia said that. So um, it was kind of a a bonding, seeing Earth for what it is, you know, the the pale blue dot, and, and it was one world, and kind of get over all of these divisions, but uh, when they came back to Earth and they shared their glorious experiences, which were truly glorious, they found that they could influence other people, their experience. And as other people got influenced by that firsthand experience, they could influence other people about that. Oh, my God. And so it could go five or six deep before it started to really. Oh, so I tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and it. it, it, So that's the overview effect. So there, I went to space. I'm telling you, Richard. Richard, now you're sharing it on the radio to thousands of people. They're getting the passion, the excitement, the amazing view, what it means for Earth, what it means for our future, and they're sharing it with people, and that's the overview effect. Okay, perfect, perfect. 
perfect okay. setup for my question. Given that both Branson and Bezos in this fledgling, you know, barnstorming era of private spaceflight up and down sub, you know, orbital parabolas are, are appealing by, by necessity to people who've made a lot of money. People who have money have disproportionate influence in American enterprise, American politics, American you know, social policy, in everything. The more money you got, the more influence you've got, period. What I see potentially happening here, which is an upscale effect that I have not seen anybody else talk about, not even you know Stephanie Rule the other morning, Bezos came down absolutely gleeful with what this was going to do to help the environment of the planet. He talked about the thinness of the atmosphere, seeing no boundaries, and he was just over West Texas, so he could have seen some longhorn cattle maybe, but no boundaries. The point is that if, the, if, if by the end of the year we've got maybe half a dozen or maybe a dozen, if we, do, if we count Branson, of people with lots of money and lots of connections to country clubs and social, you know, uh, uh, what are some of those online, um, uh, you know, connect, LinkedIn, you know, in other words, the overview effect can be amplified a hundred, a thousand times at the speed of light through social media now with first person experiences and your photographs and your selfies and your personal video of what you did. And in other words, is it not possible that this is a wedge at a level of society, people who have money, therefore people who have disproportionate influence that we're looking at a potential social factor, which no one has talked about yet, which could actually help apropos of my first story tonight, help us save the damn planet. Um, I would say it's probably possible. Uh, I don't know that it will happen. I'll tell you an interesting story about what you're thinking, uh, and I'm glad it's documented with me saying this on many early space show programs. I haven't said it in a while. But if government ever wanted to control people and keep us locked down, I don't mean for the pandemic, but keep us in home on the farm, so to speak, what they need to do is stop people from going to space. Because as soon as they go to space, and whether they experience the overview effect or are awed by what they see, or they see the, the effect of fire in South America in the rainforest, or how smoke travels, or anything. You know, you can see fighting when they were fighting in, in the wars. You could see the combat going on. I mean, you couldn't see the detail, but you could, you could see the smoke and stuff like that. Then you got to keep people from having that kind of big global view that you're talking about, Richard, that the overview talks about. So you got to stop people from going to space because once people start going to space and having this experience and share it with people, and you're right about today, their social media, whereas when I was saying all this stuff 10 or 15 years ago and when Frank wrote the book, there was no social media, and it was just more word of mouth, um, then if, if government really wanted to lock you down and keep us home on the farm – they'd stop space tourism because space tourism has the power to change this world. And the more people that go, 
and the more people that can communicate their experiences and share their pictures rather than just government-approved astronauts, the more powerful space is going to be not just for commerce and industry and economics, but for social reasons as well, too. And I suspect that the more people that go and the more people that are influenced about this, the more they're not going to put up with the usual crap that government does, whether you're a conservative or whether you're a liberal. And I have been saying that for 20 years because Frank White's book was part of my doctoral dissertation. It's the best book I'd ever written, read on space at the time. And I saw that 20 years ago, Richard, that you keep us sheltered, keep control of, some, of humanity, keep us out of space because space has the power to transform us economically with innovation, with technology, with medical research. I could go, if we had time, I could tell you personal stories about medical research that have made a difference in, in my life and my son's life. Uh, so, um, government, keep your hands off of us. That's what I can <laughs> say. Uh, did you watch some of the things that Bezos said that morning when he came back down? Yeah. And, the, I did. and what he did? <clears throat> to me, I mean, here's a guy with $205 billion who doesn't pay any taxes. Do not, blame, right. do not blame Jeff Bezos. That's the Congress. That's the political mire of corruption that protects major corporations from paying corporations their fair share. From paying their fair share. So what Bezos is doing, instead of paying taxes, that morning he donated $100 million to Van Jones, who's a major uh, national activist, social activist, and he donated another $100 million to a chef who has done incredible work in feeding desperately poor people all over the country and actually other parts of the world. He gave them each $100 million and told them, go spend it for people and other organizations and projects that you think are important. Suppose he took another couple of hundred million and he subsidized kids from the ghetto, people from South America, Israelis, uh, Russians, China, whatever, all over the world and had them all train together and go through that several minute extraordinary experience together but not having to pony up a quarter million dollars. And then they all talk about it because Bezos gives them the communications leverage, as does Branson, so they can communicate their experience through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatever to all their friends and their friends' friends and their friends' friends' friends. In other words, if he really wants to save the world, which he really says he wants to do, and he has this vision for an expanding space frontier Another couple of hundred million that he won't even feel to me seems important to invest now to springboard this social transformation of Earth as a fragile place we all must protect. So what do you, you want me to – I don't know if he would do that or not, and uh, you know, people – Donate and and give and support, not, not just because maybe they're altruistic, but there's a, usually a hook in it for them. So Bezos was was getting an awful lot of bad press for you know the the billionaire boys battle and 
you know, going up to space. And then when he made the comment about Amazon customers and employees paying for his ride and stuff like that. So he, there's a lot of press that says this was the motivating thing to give these $200 million Yeah, but just away. because there's press doesn't make it true. I mean, but, remember, remember, well, when, but, remember when George – hang on. Remember when George Bush said he looked into Putin's eyes and he saw his soul? Yeah. Have you read Bezos' valedictorian speech when he was a kid in high school here in Albuquerque when he was 18? Bezos, years years Bezos is a true believer. He's a space yeah, cadet. I, I he, he is a true believer. And whether he – whether the question is what if he did that, what kind of difference it would make. And I honestly don't know what kind of difference it would make. But I, I would like to think the potential is there that it would make a positive difference. But, you know, saving the world, what is your definition for saving the world versus mine versus somebody else's definition? Raising so I, I think- people's consciousness that we're all in this together. Well, that one thing. Okay. Hey, Ron, you've been very quiet. Did we lose Ron? I don't know. Ron, are you there? I think we must have left, lost okay, him. Okay, let me see. Um, Keith, tell me. Tell me, okay? Have hello, we lost hello, hello. There you are. Back. Hello? Okay, you're back. Okay. Okay, you're back. And with an echo. Me. <laughs> what do you think of what we've just been talking about? Ron? Oh, we... He's out saving the world, Richard. <laughs> I I think his link is so horrible. What we might want to do, Keith, is to uh, you know kill the call and then reinitialize. So we only got about fifteen minutes till the end of the show. Um, I just say the potential is there, but I I you know you you got to be careful with words and definitions, and pe- people need to know what Bezos' definition is of saving the world or this or that. There are people that, that don't approve of who got the $100 million, but they approve of the idea of his willing to give that, but they would have liked to seen him give $100 million to, say, maybe the Boys Club of America rather than to one person who is incredibly politically an activist that offends half the, half the nation. So I, I just think you have to be really careful if you're going to try yeah, to but do wait, really stop, great. Stop, 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 stop. It's his damn money. He can give it to whoever that's, he wants to. I, I that's called that. free enterprise, okay? He decided yeah, on those two people, and to me, it was kind of like the uh, the precedent. And if, he, if, he, if, if hang on, if, let me let me finish my thought. If he wants to continue to raise consciousness, it seems to me subsidizing. A lot of kids that will never be able to amass a quarter million dollars, but this might give them the incentive to go on and do the things that would allow them to have a quarter million surplus somewhere down the line in there. In other words, this could be transformative at an individual level to say nothing for the planetary consciousness of all kinds of people that would stick a mic in their in their face and say, how did it feel? Well, it is his money. He can do what he wants, and I fully and 100% support that. But I'm just saying if you if your mission is to save the world, I think you need to be really careful on how you go about saving the world because you don't want to divide the world and make the world more complex 
than when you're starting out. So I think giving it to kids like you're talking about around the world is one thing. Giving it to really activist political people is another thing. But and see, I, I, uh, so I, David, 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 really David, David, everything is political. Come on. And Margot Adler, wherever she is tonight, tried to tell me this decades ago, and I fought her tooth and nail. And in my ultimate out years, I figured out she was totally right. Nothing can be done that's not ultimately to somebody political. So politics be damned. If you've got the wherewithal, do it. And to me, this would be such leverage. It would demonstrate him as a visionary leader who basically puts his money where his mouth is, and the leverage of all these people that would never have a prayer of doing this themselves could have such incredible catalytic, you know, exponential effects, again, because of social media. Well, I, I would just say the potential is there. I have absolutely no idea as to whether it would get the result that, uh, that you're talking well, about. Well, let's just hope that from, you know, my mouth to, to Bezos' ear – Maybe somebody listening knows him and will will give him the idea. Okay, Ron, you are back. Ron, are you back? Mr. Gerbron, are you back? Oh, he's not back yet. Okay. So we have uh, – I really want some of his thoughts on this because Ron and I have these interesting political discussions off air all the time. All the time. It's, well, it's, I, 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 I think what I'm getting at, David, is I want an open system. And now both these guys, Branson and Bezos, have developed at a barnstorming 1920s, you know, biplane scale, the potential for opening the system. And the more acolytes, the more converts, I mean, there's nothing worse or better than a new Catholic or a new Baptist or a new Methodist. So the more people at every level of society we can get to have this experience and then talk about it. Okay. Ah, there you are. The better. Ron? Yeah. So yeah, sorry, it's it's some systemic thing. It's not Let's it's not, not talk about housekeeping, please. Let's move on. What do you think about uh, what we're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. Okay, well I missed the last five minutes because I've been trying to reconnect. I'm talking so about uh, Bezos when he landed, gave $100 million to two separate people to, to disperse oh, through right. their I social. Heard that, yes. Okay. I want him to give another $200 yeah. million to subsidize people from all over the world, kids, grandmothers. I mean, we got the upper limit now, 82 years of age. We got the lower limit, 18. There's a huge swath of humanity that fits between that envelope that you could give an experience to that with through social media amplify, accelerate, you know, uh, extrapolate, quadruplicate, whatever term you want to use that would so impact the social fabric of the world as a fragile one place with one people, one humanity, one origin, and if we're not very careful, one destiny. Okay, I got an idea for that. Uh, Put that money into putting up a space station Make it a space camp, a real space camp. Send them up to there. Uh, let them spend a, let them spend a little time in orbit, see what the Earth looks like, and I think that would have the kind of effect you're talking about. Because well, uh, that's not, not going to happen probably for another ten years because remember his 
next mission, New Glenn, is the first vehicle he's building. We're talking Bezos now, capable of getting to right. and from orbit. I'm talking about day after tomorrow. He's already got a spacecraft that well, we know works. Why not start right. there? Well, the Chinese just put well, the Chinese just put up a, spa, a space station in uh, six months. You know, it just uh, yeah, it just but that's a, a Chinese that's, that's a Chinese government. That's not Jeff Bezos. Come on, the new Glenn no. and new no, new Armstrong rockets are going to take at least ten years to probably properly develop. Now, Musk could do this. You know, he's already yeah. you know renting out his spacecraft, the Dragon, to the Inspiration Four mission in in September. But that's being subsidized by another billionaire, not Musk. If Bezos really wants to use his technology to change the world, I think he ought to give a couple hundred mil to subsidizing people who could never afford to pay at all different levels and just let them have that social media and talk about how amazing it was and how they want to go back. Uh, That sounds very good. I'm very suspicious. Uh, You're always suspicious. You were born suspicious. Come on. I'm I'm joining you on the suspicion, Ron. Give me the downside. Did we lose him again? Maybe. So tell me why there's a downside. Because when I look at history and I look at these act, act excuse me activities and actions. Uh, the good intentions don't always pan out, and I, I honestly don't know what would happen or if you would come close to getting the result you want or almost get the result you want. And I, if you had a way to put this before Bezos and he wanted to do it, I'd be very supportive of him to do it, but I still would be suspect that the result would be what everyone thinks the result is going to be or what they would want. I, I well I then give you, me the downside. I am I the downside is that you probably don't get anywhere near the kind of result you want and it's it didn't pan out. So I don't know that you're going to make monsters out of it. You're going to turn into having really bad people, you know, prowling the earth. I don't see a downside <laughs> in something like that. I just the downside is that uh, you you probably don't accomplish what it is you set out to accomplish. I don't know. I don't see a way that space going into space produces something bad about a person. Okay. Now, not everybody who has gone to space has the overview effect. So I have asked many astronauts on the show and others, and probably a third of the people who have been in the space never claimed to have an overview effect and don't claim any kind of spiritual realization about going into space. So it's oh, not oh, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it there then. That you said uh-huh. one you said one third? I'm just guessing about a third. Oh, well that, that means, I made that, mean, that, that. that that means two thirds did. That's that's right. I'm Remember nothing not, in life is hundred percent. Nothing ever. But, even even vaccines are dangerous because nothing is hundred percent. So if you only got two-thirds of the people that you sent up to start talking and gushing and thinking bigger and out of their neighborhood and thinking that people on the other side of the planet were same humans mm-hmm. as they are, would this not be incredibly beneficial because we're dividing into warring camps at the moment? I, I, 
I'm trying to tell you that I don't yeah. think there's a downside to putting people in space. Okay. Okay. I I I can't see space harming people. Well, maybe physically they something happens to them, but short of that, I don't see how being into space hmm. changes a person for the worse. I, okay, I just, Ron, I you are you are back with us. We only got a few minutes. Yeah, I am. Here. I was. I, okay. I was back. Yeah, I was back when I was. I was muted. Richard, you're making a categorical statement about the effects, and I think. I no, think I'm uh, based on this guy's book. He actually did research. He found most people that went to space had an incredibly interesting epiphany. It's not a categorical uh, statement. I, well, I, you're you're assuming that it would have that carryo that uh, over overview overlook. That's the uh, overview effect. effect. Uh, and David said Overview from his effect. own, you know, you know, polling with people, astronauts he's had on his show, it's about two thirds and one third. Two thirds yes, yeah, one third right. no. And and yeah, Frank is out I'm not, working. I'm not he has an institute this, called the Overview heard. Institute, and he's doing what he can to spread the word. And he'd probably love an idea like what you're talking about. Uh, and you know, absolutely, it would be in line. With his, I can't speak for him, but it would probably be in line with his his work, his institute, and uh, and the, the newer versions of the overview effect that he has written. So um, I, I just, mm-hmm. my only hesitancy is that you you know you you just don't know how it's going to actually pan out in reality. But if Bezos wanted to do it and there was a movement on to get him to do it, I'd be supportive of it. Super. And Ron, I presume you uh, have a similar opinion. uh, Well, I, it's, it's similar. It's similar. It's not identical because you mentioned what Bezos has already done. And if uh, I think something that no billionaire in the billionaire boys club that is going to do what you're proposing, one thing they should never do, is make massive giftings to political activists. I'm not talking about political viewpoints. I mean, you mentioned Van Jones. I know very well Van Jones. Ninety seconds. Million dollars to spend as he will, and it'll be very interesting to see what he spends together. it on, won't it? Hey, we are running out of time, guys. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to have to. Can we? We will join you in the after party, okay? Uh, David. It has been really, really interesting. We've got to do this again because I think there's going to be more flights. And if there are more flights, we need to talk about it and cover it. And maybe there'll be, you know, maybe someone else who goes on a flight will say, well, given that the earth looked like one outside the window, maybe I should give $100 million to some important charity or some group or some cause. In other words, this could become a going concern. Tomorrow night, we're going to shift gears a little bit. I've got uh, Rick Spence on, Dr. Richard Spence. We're going to talk about American history, revolutions, and some surprises on the political front that are going to knock your socks off. We've been down this road before. So until tomorrow night, same bad channel, same time, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And keep looking up.